Okay, before you start this episode, I'm going to ask you, the listener, to do a couple of things. First, if you're not yet a subscriber to the Mormon Renegade Patreon channel, go there now and sign up for either the $6 or $12 tier, because there are some photos that go along with this podcast that you're definitely going to want to see. Second, go and take the batteries out of your smoke detectors, because we're going to cover some gospel topics that are going to blow your mind. I have Ken Peterson back on the podcast, and we discuss the origins and destiny of the earth and its people. This is an expansive, comprehensive, I mean all-encompassing discussion that was absolutely amazing. We start looking at some of the hidden gems from the scriptures and quotes of early Mormon leaders. We discuss everything from the age of the earth, the earth's place in the universe pre and post fall, the earth's ultimate relocation after the millennium, pre-Adamites, and Mormon cosmology. We then finish our conversation by talking about what this really means to us as Mormons. So prepare to have your minds blown and expanded on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Look, it's no secret that our society has become much more crude and coarse. To become and raise men and women of virtue and character is a Herculean task. To help with this, I have recently wrote and published a book. Now, back in the 1700s, Washington had a book called Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. It was a book with 110 rules that talked about how to conduct yourself like a civilized person in society, something that today's society is sorely lacking. What I did is I went back through the book and I reinterpreted his original sayings for the 21st century. So the book is laid out in a way in which you see Washington's original rule. Right below that is my explanation for the 21st century. And below that, you'll find two or three examples of where to use this in the real world. Now, to go along with this, there's a workbook that helps parents teach these principles and practices to their kids. To find the book, go to mormonrenegade.com, go to the bottom of the page, Search out the blog post and order your copy today. I can bear personal testimony from personal experience that this is an invaluable tool to help you raise men and women of virtue and character. How's it going? Going really well. Dude, when we talked yeah. about this, if, uh, I guess a week, maybe two weeks ago, I don't know. My days run together now. <laughs> but when we talked about this, I was super stoked for this one. <laughs> so for the, for those of you at home, what I want you to do is I want you to have like some duct tape or something like that real handy because we're going to go over some mind-blowing kind of stuff tonight. <laughs> and you're going to want to be able to piece that head back together when it kind of explodes. It's a, yeah, and some tinfoil hats, right? <laughs> and so may, maybe some tinfoil hats, right? It, this this is going to be good stuff. I've been looking to, looking forward to this one for, for a week now. So, Ken, what are we talking about, brother? Well, you, you cracked me up. I'm, it's probably why we're friends. Uh, you know, I gave you this list of potential topics that we could discuss, and you immediately went for the metaphorically and literally the most far out topic there is, the most expansive topic there is. 
And I'm like, great, let's do this. Let's do this. So uh, fasten your seatbelts, everybody, because this is going to be out there. So yeah, I'm super excited for this. All right. Well, let's fire it up. What do you got? All right. Oh my goodness. Let me go to the beginning here. Oops. Oh, sorry about that. Are we Are we seeing that? Nope. Not seeing it yet. Are you sharing the screen? I think so. Uh, all participants can share. Let's see what's going on here. Because I'm showing up. Oh, come on. Do, do, share screen. Boom. There we go. Sorry about that. There we go. <laughs> nice. Earth's origin and destiny. <clears throat> that is huge. Otherwise known as the plan of salvation, the exploded plan of salvation. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and I'll preface this by saying that uh, most of this is based on two extremely influential books on my own personal thinking in addition to my own research, but Earth in the Beginning by Eric Skousen, Cleon Skousen's son with multiple scientific degrees, and The Kolob Theorem by Lynn Hilton, PhD, retired professor at Brigham Young, where they talk about the plan of salvation as it applies from eternity to eternity in one eternal round and what that implies. So tonight, uh, when you, you can't discuss Earth's origin and its destiny without discussing astronomy because of Brigham Young primarily, or without discussing prehistory because of Joseph Smith and because of science. And uh, my own thinking to preface this discussion, when I first gained a, a concrete personal knowledge of the truthfulness of the restored gospel, it was never an issue of <clears throat> the gospel or science. In my mind, if the gospel is true and if the science is true, they're going to say the same thing. Or as Eric Skousen put in preface to his book, he said, when religion and science are both fully understood, they will not disagree. Mm. Right? They're coming at it from different angles, the truth. <clears throat> well, so yeah, and, and you go to like quotes by Brigham Young, right? Like where all truth belongs to Mormonism. You're right. And so and that's one of the things about Mormonism that I love, too, is this idea of, no, 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 science science and religion don't have to be at odds. So, um, yeah, no, I... So, I, so throughout my life, my mind has quite innately worked at reconciling, just naturally because it was fun, reconciling what science thinks it knows with what the restored with what we understand about the restored gospel which is not yet fully restored for that matter so we're going to talk about uh how the earth came to be when the earth came to be and how it fits in the eternal scheme of things ultimately where where it came from and where it's going so that's a lot so just we a begin little with, just a little yeah we begin appropriately with Joseph Smith. <clears throat> you ask the learned doctors why they say the world was made out of nothing, and they will answer, doesn't the Bible say he created the world? 
So right off the bat, Joseph Smith is addressing young earth creationism. And I love to get in these discussions because uh, opponents of Mormonism simplistically believe that we're idiots and, you know, we, we're science deniers and all of that, which is far from the truth. So Joseph Smith from day one made it clear that we are not young earth creationists. He goes on, and they infer from the word create that it must have been made out of nothing. Now, the word create came from the word barao, which does not mean to create, a, create out of nothing. It means to organize, the same as a man would organize materials and build a ship. Hence, we infer that God had materials to organize the world out of chaos, chaotic matter. Or, as referenced in other places, matter unorganized, which is element, and which dwells all the and in which dwells all the glory. Element had an existence from the time he, God, had. The pure principles of element are principles which can never be destroyed. They may be organized and reorganized, but not destroyed. They had no beginning, and can have no end. So here he is in the 1840s talking about the law of conservation of matter and energy. Wow. <laughs> Cannot be created nor destroyed. One of those, you know, 100 years ahead of his time. Right. Right. So <clears throat> he goes on. How do you like that photo? I, I you know, I, I bounce back and forth. There's a part of me that thinks that that could be legit. I included it just because I'm tired of the old, you know, pretty boy images of him. I, and of course, this is a painting based off of the little photo in the in the locket. Okay, I'm curious. Do you think that's sidebar? Do you think that's the actual an actual photo of Joseph Smith? I don't know. Okay. I, the reason I like it, this looks like a man who knows hardship. This looks like a man who knows farming and working with his hands. Looks like a man who likes to wrestle. Yep. You yep. know, not you know, not some East Coast dandy, you know, like many have portrayed to be. Right. Here's the most interesting thing. One of the three most interesting things he has ever said. He says the world and earth are not synonymous terms. Mm -hmm. They don't mean the same thing. The world is the human family. This earth was organized or formed out of other planets, which were broke up and remodeled and made into the one on which we live. Again, the elements are eternal. Let's, let's talk, let's talk about this for a minute, right? Because this is absolutely a radical departure from Christendom as we've known it for so long, right? And the science of his day. Yeah, yeah. So he, he's, he's, he's not talking just, well, he, it's always couched in religion. But he's revealing some things that that mankind, in, in terms of scientists, would not come to recognize for another hundred years. Exactly. Exactly. Planet formation. In fact, yep. we didn't have a clear picture of that until within the last couple of decades. Right. When we could actually take photographs of planet formation. Yep. And we know that planet through there, the star goes supernova, and all the chaotic elements begin to coalesce again, forming bodies and orbiting bodies. And we can actually witness what Joseph Smith taught 200 years ago. Right. Now, then I'm going to blow your mind a little more because we know that how that's talking about the actual 
coal, um, uh, the, the, the actual coming together of planetary bodies. I think he might be talking about something else. <clears throat> Brigham Young. And I wanted a, a young picture of him. So nice. Brigham Young said, this would suggest that the family of the gods are continually recycling the planetary and stellar elements of the universe until these elements are permanently associated with an eternal cosmic organization. This pattern of cosmic creation follows the principle that when the elements in an organized form do not fill the end of their creation, they are thrown back to be made over again. Mm -hmm. Think of this. Here's a man 170 years ago talking about uh, the recycling of the stellar elements. Right. Most people today don't go there. And here this man is. Let me ask. With, it, with his mind and the restored gospel, pondering these things. Let me ask you this question, because this jumped out at me. When the elements in an organized form do not fill the end of their creation, they are thrown back. What do you think Brigham means there by not filling, uh, that they do not fill the end of their creation? What do you think he means? I'm so glad you asked. Spencer W. Kimball taught that although some planets have gone on to perfection, like this Earth will, other planets have gone out of existence through self-destruction because they do not fill the measure of their creation. So, okay, so now this is going to be such a fascinating episode because now, <laughs> now I'm going to ask... This, this is just question. the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> so now I'm going to ask this question. By them not filling the measure of their creation, is that because of the elements themselves or is that because there were a population that did not fill the measure of their creation? Let's go on. Okay. When we say unorganized matter, what do we tend to think of? To me, I would think of, of, you know, rocks floating in space and then being brought together to be organized. I'm suggesting that what we're viewing right here is probably the most common form of unorganized matter. Okay. This is Mars. So it is a planet, but it is devoid of life. Unorganized matter is inert matter, matter that has not been infused with life. Okay. So, but let me so, ask this. Yeah, it's, go ahead. It, it would still be filling some sort of measure of its creation because without like, as I understand it, and again, I'm a meathead who loves Doritos and lifting weights, but let, let me ask you this, because we know that that this Goldilocks zone that our planet inhabits, right? Could this planet be filling the measure of its creation by staying in its proper orbit and keeping our gravity in check, so to speak, and keeping this nice clockwork pattern that we've enjoyed sure. for so many Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Okay. And this this is toward the end of our discussion. Well, but uh my Book of Moses says that when that when the earth is exalted and enters the celestial realm, another world shall take its place. Oh, okay. So All this right. Goldilocks zone doesn't go to waste. Right. There, 
we're finding that they're they're not too common. I mean, we we now know for the first time in history that there are planets orbiting every star, mm-hmm. but not every star is capable of supporting human life as we understand it. And there are lots and lots of planets who are not in that Goldilocks zone. But <clears throat> what I'm suggesting, I want to go back and forth. Contrast Mars and Earth. Similar orbits. Similarly, I mean, they're close enough in the Goldilocks zone that they're comparable. Similar in size, but they could not be more different. Right. Look at this Earth. This terrarium in the vacuum of space, which is so perfectly ordered and organized, you and I can go outside naked if we wanted and be just comfortable and fine. I mean, we don't even ha- we don't even require protection right. in this perfect terrarium of the space. Right. How wonderful, how rare, how against the odds is that, right? right. When we could be this. Yeah. And it's abundantly clear that Mars once had oceans. Right. So there's a part of me that thinks, no, let's go on for now. This is what science currently believes about the history, the ancient, the prehistory of Earth. Starting on the left-hand side, we see the whole thing. 4.6 billion years to the present. And as far as science knows, in terms of the geological record, there are no signs of any life whatsoever in the geological record until about five, 500 million years okay. later. So about 4 billion years pass with no significant sign of life. And then we see this part expanded here, 600 million BC to the, to the common era. And we see these, these are the things we hear about, the Cambrian, the Cambrian explosion, the first Mm -hmm. sign of of this explosion of complex life forms. And then we go into the Devonian and the Permian, and then we get to the most famous Jurassic, Cretaceous, Triassic periods, and then leading to the tertiary period. And then we uh, expand that last, what is that, 60 million years, Paleocene, etc., the Miocene. And we don't get to the appearance of man until this little sliver, clear at the tippy top, the right. Holocene. Right. The Holocene. The earliest humanoids, and we'll talk about them too. Right. Well, let me ask a quick question here. The yeah. Cam- Cambrian explosion, that's when we first start seeing complex life. But I, I don't think we're doing it justice because it's not like just one life form, right? It, it seems to no. be. No. Like- explosion all at once of all these varied life forms that really show up and and in some ways kind of defy evolution to a large extent because they just show up right they have just you, have you gone through my notes have no you? no i'm just again you're, you're totally leading this discussion this I is know. awesome no i so, i i just don't sleep much and so i read so about this useful. is what science says does this jive with the restored gospel? Joseph Smith again. Eternity has been going on in this system, not this world, almost 2,555 millions of years. Hmm. That was 1845. 
shortly after his mart martyrdom. And he was being quoted by W.W. Phelps to William Clayton. So, so Joseph, so at, uh, mind you, geologists at the time in 1845 were estimating the age of the earth at 40,000 years. <laughs> now, in, we wouldn't say 2,555 millions of years. We would say <clears throat> 2.555 billion. Okay. That's the number he's talking about. So when he says not this world, because we just read a quote where he talks about a world means people, right? Essentially people on a planet. Yes, yes. He's, when he says not this world, he's, he's basically saying before man, right? Before man ever got here, this system, and I assume he's talking about the earth and maybe our direct solar system has been going on. Or he could be talking about the track that we are on, okay. this system, which, I mean, this, what I love about this statement is it's so bold in its uh, chronological scope. I mean, it is way beyond anybody of his time estimating the, they weren't even thinking in terms of billions. He right. was. Right. Which, which is significant. This is not too far off from four and a half billion years. <clears throat> The people say this earth has existed. <clears throat> Some people have interpreted this statement to mean our system, our our from the time we were born as spirits, when our intelligence uh, was fused with spirit matter, which we'll also talk about. To the present day, 2.555 billion years. Now, it's funny to me, he didn't say two billion years, you know, right, or two and a half billion years. This is a very specific number. So what he's talking about is a time period that defines the duration of a generation of gods, meaning how long it takes for the offspring of God from the point of their birth to becoming gods themselves. Oh, okay. Some have interpreted that to mean... This is, he has just given us how long an eternity is. Okay. A generation of gods. We're going to talk a lot about the eternity right now. First, let's talk about this number. <clears throat> By the way, most people don't know that's what Kolob looks like. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, it is cool. I don't know if that looks like Kolob, but it could be, right? We know from scripture that a day on Kolob is equal to a thousand years on earth. Why is Kolob significant? God reckons, God reckons time on earth by Kolob. Our, our times are related, though different. And okay. we will, and the Kolob is nigh unto the celestial. Is Kolob celestial? No. What is nigh unto the celestial? The terrestrial. Right. And that <clears throat> Brigham Young and others taught that the earth, when it was first formed, or the world when it was formed was nigh unto Kolob. But we'll get into that. But we need to talk about this number and the duration of an eternity. So on on Earth, by our time, we know an eternity if assuming for the sake of discussion that this is the length of an eternity, <clears throat> the question becomes how long is that on Kolob? And is that a significant number? Now, mind you, 
Joseph Smith didn't finish this equation for us. He gave us all the pieces, meaning he either knew the answer and didn't give it to us, to us, or he didn't have the answer yet himself. But the number is still extraordinary, as we shall see. So if a day on Kolob is a thousand years, a year on Kolob is 365,000 years right. on Earth. Now that we know that, we can do the math backwards. If an eternity on Earth is 2.555 billion, we can de uh, deduce how many Kolob years that is by dividing 2.55 billion by 365,000. Okay. I see where you're going. Fasten your seatbelts. Wow. The duration of an eternity on Kolob is 7,000 years. Kolob years. Exactly. Okay. I mean, you do the math. And that's, when yep. I tell people this, I, I make them get their calculator out because they don't believe me. Right. And it, an eternity, and a, a creative epoch, a generation of gods, the time it takes for us to progress from baby spirits to resurrected exalted beings is 7,000 years on Kolob. Why is that number significant? Because <clears throat> uh, that was... That was that was the uh, seven thousand was was the number that people thought for a long time how the the age of the earth right that that the we, earth was created in seven created periods right. yep that the order of God is based on the week right and in section seventy seven it tells us that the temporal existence of this earth is seven thousand years mm. temporal meaning in time right. So, and 7,000 in, in the number seven is whole, complete. Right. This, this What are the odds that a, uh, an eternity on Kolob is 7,000 years? That's crazy. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah. And, and the fact he calls that, the fact that Joseph calls out that, I won't even pretend that two and a half billion years or whatever, and then it all kind of gets whittled down to 7,000. Uh, that's that's a hell of a coincidence right it I mean, is he's a pretty good guesser um, <laughs> doctrine <and> covenants <clears throat> his purposes fail not neither are there any who can stay his hand from eternity to eternity he is the same and his years never fail joseph smith used this phrase a lot in scripture and in his speech speaking of eternities in plural and in my book, you'll see a lot of that, too. I forgot to include that, that the ancient texts talk about eternities in plural. So eternity can mean forever or in very often it, it is like, <clears throat> you know, we have century, we have decades, centuries, millenniums and eternities. Right. <laughs> right. It's an, an epoch of time. <clears throat> and this is this is the genius of Joseph Smith. Right. I, I want to point that out. Is that. And I shouldn't say the genius of Joseph Smith. This is yeah. the genius of what was revealed to Joseph Smith. Well, it's it's the that, mind of God. Yeah. But that Joseph that, Smith could comprehend it. For the first his credit. Right. For the first time in human history, man is put into proximity to the divine. Yeah. The deity. <clears throat> yep. Well, and we, we skipped the, I mean, this is another discussion. 
um, <clears throat> the how modern science the the teachings of the prophet joseph smith in the light of modern science right the very when he teaches that time is not the same everywhere what is he teaching he's teaching the theory of the relativity of time right right what again a century ahead anyway <clears throat> now we get to this bottom quote <clears throat> it is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of god <clears throat> and to know that we may converse with him as one man converses with another, and that he was once a man like us. Sadly, this is where most people stop. Because he goes on to say, he wasn't exactly a man like us. He was mortal. But he explains it. Yea, that God himself, the father of us all, dwelt on an earth the same as Jesus Christ himself did. And I will show it from the Bible. And then he goes and quotes, I think it's John 17, where Christ says, I do nothing but what i have seen the father do mm. so what he's teaching us here is that our father in heaven was the savior of his eternity right right the progressions of godhood and of course that has implications regarding the previous i mean if if you extrapolate what's happening to us right. and where we came from in the previous eternity and where we're going and what's going to that implies a lot of things that we're not prepared to talk about tonight. <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh so here's John Taylor. I I have to tell you how surprised I am at how deep thinking these people were. Mm -hmm. And some of the people of our generation are. John Taylor, well done for Mormonism. It unravels the little mysteries which like a fog hide the serene atmosphere of heaven and looks from world to world, from system to system, from universe to universe, and from eternity to eternity, where in each and all there is a presidency of gods and gods many and lords many. And by the way, he's quoting Corinthians there. Mm -hmm. uh, for Paul said that. And he's, although there be uh, lords many and gods many, many, to us there is but one God and one right. Savior and from time to time or from eternity to eternity jesus christ shall bring in another world regulated and saved as this will be when he delivers it up to the father and god becomes all in all <clears throat> wow now riffing on this theme <clears throat> say what you will about bruce mcconkey uh he encapsulates this teaching and extrapolates his teaching better than anyone else I've heard. And look, it's a photo of him actually smiling. I like. I didn't, I didn't think he could do that. <laughs> you look at him; you don't recognize him. Do you? No, he has teeth. <laughs> As men view things from their mortal perspective, there was a past eternity, and there will be a future eternity. The past eternity embraced the sphere of eternal existence which all men had as the spirit offspring of exalted parents in pre-existence. The future eternity will be that eternal sphere in which the righteous, having gained both immortality and eternal life, will themselves become exalted parents and have a continuation of the seeds forever and ever. Quoting Doctrine and Covenants. In this sense, eternity becomes a measure of eternal time. Those past ages when all men dwelt in the presence of their eternal father 
were one eternity, and those future ages when these spirit children will have gone on to exaltation, having spirit children of their own, will be another eternity. <clears throat> mm. He goes on, having in mind this eternal, unending repetition <clears throat> of the eternal plan of creation, redemption, and salvation. It is plain what our Lord meant when he said he was from all eternity to all eternity in Doctrine and Covenants. And also when he said of himself, from eternity to eternity, he is the same, and his years never fail. In other words, Christ, as an eternal exalted being, never varies. From one eternity to the next, he is the same. From preexistence to preexistence, his course goes on in one eternal round. And so will it be with all exalted beings. Those who become gods will then be, from eternity to eternity, everlastingly the same. Always possessing the fullness of all things and multiplying their race without end. Ooh. And I love this little summation from this lovely book. <clears throat> the process of begetting spirit offspring, preparing earths on which they may dwell, and perfecting all things is an endless divine cycle, one eternal round, as described in the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. Among other things, such a round may equal one eternity or one creative epoch of the gods. Mm. Ooh. I love that rings true to me. Yeah. And I meant to say at the beginning of all this, I, I teach gospel doctrine and I will never teach this as gospel doctrine. <laughs> <laughs> what we're doing is what Brother Brigger did. We're, we're reckoning. But I have to say, we're reckoning based, I mean, uh, I'm not just freewheeling based on nothing, you know. So right. It's no, not official no, doctrine. Right. But we're, we're quoting, we are quoting prophets and well-thought people and scripture. Right. Which has not, the fullness of which has not yet been revealed, but this is fun. So now we come back to Joseph Smith's statement. The world and earth are not synonymous terms. The world is the human family, otherwise known as what? The world of Adam. Right. From Earth in the beginning. Some have suggested that the Earth's fossilized life forms are remnants from these older planets and have nothing to do with anything that ever lived on this Earth, anciently or now. However, this idea presents us with several problems. So people imagine that there was this planet that had dinosaurs, and the planet was smashing into smithereens and it came back together and every once in a while we'll find a dinosaur bone sticking out that it didn't live and die on the surface of our planet so far so good yep here's the problem with that thinking and i'll get to the uh, why a lot of people have a hard time with this and, and we'll discuss why that is <clears throat> here's the problem with that type of thinking first of all the crust of the earth is ultra thin it is, relative to the bulk of the Earth itself, extremely fragile and carefully constructed. If fossils from broken up planets are part of the crust, why are they on and within this thin surface rather than somewhere deep in the body of the Earth? Mm. And it's more specific than that. They're always found at the same depth or the same geological layer in the same sequence. We might accept a jumble of fossils scattered at random throughout the crust as coming from older can, planets. Can I can I interrupt you real quick before you start reading that? Oh yeah, yeah. You said something there, and I want to I want to go back to this because 
this this would this is kind of critical in in a new earth versus old earth kind of of thought you're you're making the contention here that we find all these animals in roughly the same stratum as you did thought being that if these were creatures on a different planet that uh and they were just fossilized on that other planet or whatever and as they would come in we would expect to see them more dispersed and intermixed is that kind of what right. i'm drawing from that yeah 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 okay. and we'll, we're going to explain this more but you're exactly right but the facts of fossil placement are just the opposite there is a very carefully established sequence in the earth's strata would the family of gods deliberately put fossils from older planets in and on the earth in a carefully ordered pattern just to baffle and mislead us concerning their origin what would be the purpose of that yeah. not only that but this this strata and they're named here and the further down you go the more ancient they are this is a world map of where these fossils are found it's everywhere it's not isolated. It's everywhere. The strata and the remains of these prehistoric creatures are everywhere. The inescapable truth is they lived on the surface of this planet. Okay. Yep. So how do we reconcile that with what Joseph Smith said? We're going to go to that right now. Um, Eric Skousen makes this very significant statement that is true one startling fact about these ancient remains is that most of them bear little or no resemblance to plants and animals living today so in the geological record at the end of the cretaceous period the dinosaurs disappear and in the tertiary period new creatures come about that bear little to no resemblance that's that's sea life animal life and plant life completely different from the immediately preceding era that's and crazy I think, yeah and i think this would also be a good example of maybe what joseph was talking about when it comes to worlds right when you're talking yeah. about it's it's literally you know we could say it would look like a different world but when when all of a sudden you you change when you look at what the definition of a world is from a gospel perspective now all of a sudden you you start to understand that even though it's on this same rocky sphere it is a different world there there are different inhabitants is is that, that a good way of making that connection thank you yes that is exactly what eric skousen is suggesting and that's exactly what i personally believe the geological record i'm going to go back um to this the life forms are so markedly different, especially in, we're going to talk about mass extinction events in a minute, which is really awesome. Whenever one of these happens between these eras, the new life forms that appear uh, in geological terms really quickly are so different that the slow and steady state of Darwinian evolution cannot explain how that happens. Right. You know, now people are quick to find out, well, what about the shark and what about the owl, the crocodile? That's like ancient. Sure, that we shouldn't be surprised. There should be carryover given what we're going to explain in a minute. But the fact of the matter is 
was like 99.9% of all species which have ever walked upon the surface of this planet are extinct. Right. So all of the all of this old stuff, they're not around. We are. Right. Well, I mean, th there's so much to talk about. So <clears throat> so the the archaeologists, anthropologists, the neo-Darwinians who talk who, who talk who preach evolution in a, in a desperate attempt to explain what happens. Uh, Eric Stallen says, in fact, the fossilized strata, rather than being a reasonably continuous record of evolving life forms, is more like a record of repeated introductions of new life forms. Mm -hmm. What the geological record shows is an explosion of new life forms and stagnation. They remain the same for millions of years. Then they disappear and a whole bunch of new life forms appear and then they stagnate and then they disappear. See what I mean? Right. And it's such it's so it's such a stark realization in the geological record that way back, I think, in the 70s, a couple of archaeologists had to come up with a new theory, which they call punctuated equilibrium. Let, let, let me translate that. Being a guy who made an excuse for drinking a lot, I'm good at this game. <laughs> Punctuated equilibrium is what we like to affectionately refer to as baffling you with BS, right? <laughs> but you know what? I have to respect to these guys, number one, that they, they're they openly admitting the conundrum <clears throat> and that they're at least graphing it and trying to posit some explanation. Now here, and what most of us don't really consider is the corner that Darwinian and neo-Darwinists have painted themselves into. If you limit yourself to no outside involvement, to no intelligent design, no God, no transplanting of life or anything like that, they don't have any other explanation. Right. They have to explain how somehow magically the earth gets erased and new species arrive on the scene. Right. Real quick. They're trying hard. You know, and I love to, because their science is a means to an end. Right. This punctuated equilibrium is, is an admission to what the geological record is actually showing. Right. Real quick, explain what a neo-Darwinist is. They're the modern day Darwinists. Okay. So they, they believe that the man evolved from uh, primitive life forms and that, and that life spontaneously evolved here on earth and gradually progressed to more and more complex life forms which is not what the geological record shows how did how did that differ differ from darwinism though well they they've modified it to okay. make it more palatable okay and what's right. fun i've had this discussion and uh, <clears throat> believers are accused of what they call the god in the gaps theory so when there are aspects of our geological record or prehistory we don't understand, we ascribe it to our magical power of God. I And I come back at them and I said, well, if that's true for me, then you're a believer of evolution in the gaps. That somehow evolution magically bridged these gaps by some right. magical power that you don't understand or can't explain. Right. And let, let, let me address here, I'm not... There is solid evidence of what we call microevolution. That uh, the law of the jungle survival of the fittest does function in nature. We do see um, 
species evolve within their species through selection. Macroevolution is one species becoming another species entirely. Right. That has yet to be proven in any real sense at all. Right. And so when we talk about evolution, we need to be more careful. Are we discussing microevolution, which is proven and is an interesting concept? In fact, you and I are in that very process in the plan of salvation. Right. But monkeys becoming humans or amoeba becoming fish or fish becoming dinosaurs or, you know, that sort of thing. There is no evidence of that to date. So would microevolution be another term for like adaptation? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. <clears throat> Here's where it gets really exciting. Uh, this is a relatively new development in the, the evolutionary science. <clears throat> it, well, I'll just read it. In geology, catastrophism theorizes that the Earth has largely been, largely been shaped by sudden, short-lived, violent events, possibly worldwide in scope. This is in contrast with uniformitarianism, sometimes called gradualism, according to which slow incremental changes such as erosion brought about all the Earth's geological features. Mm -hmm. That also applies to uh, uh, neo-Darwinism that evolution was possible because the earth is so old it took all of that time for these things to evolve into higher um, life forms and in order for that to happen you had to have this gradualism or uniformitarianism this steady state that nothing changes for long periods of time so that these things can evolve catastrophism turns gradualism on its head turns it upside down and there's no denying catastrophism for what i'm going to show you next and so catastrophism is a partial explanation to punctuated equilibrium okay why they're why things have to start over and we'll see what these catastrophes are this is the single most informative graph regarding the prehistory of the earth you will ever see so this is backwards now left is current day right is 600 million years ago before the cambrian period cambrian era each blue diamond is a, a crater on earth that was left by an asteroid the size of the crater is indicated by where the blue diamond is oh. which is reflective of how big the, the killer asteroid was uh, the orange squares <clears throat> are volcanic events. And the size of the volcanic event is also represented by how high it is on the graph. <clears throat> the different lines represent what we now call mass extinction events. Ooh, and they're all punctuated by either volcanic activity or by asteroids. Now, aren't you the smart one to make that connection? How can you not, right? Yeah. Now, mass extinction event, the most famous one to most is this uh, one on the left, this red line here, <clears throat> which is to be referred to as the, the Cretaceous Tertian or the KT boundary. This is where all the dinosaurs disappeared. Not slowly, 
in geological terms overnight. And what the geological record tells us, it wasn't just the land, plants, and animals that died, all sea life died as well. This was a worldwide catastrophic extinction event. And what, what we will see on one of the following graphs is that all of these mass extinction events, and they talk about four or five, but as we look, we can see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, at least eight mass extinction events, all with the same causation. Now, mind you, if it doesn't have a large asteroid crater accompanying the volcanic event, it probably just means we haven't found it yet. Right. And I'll show you a map of these. This is this is so cool to consider. You know, I had a good friend, <clears throat> still have a good friend, who's a geologist. <clears throat> and he'll go on forever about rocks. And he bores me to tears. But one thing, <laughs> one thing that I found interesting that he said is he went... He said he became a catastrophist once he visited the Washington Scablands. And are you familiar with that area at oh, all? Oh, no. It, it's up in, I want to say, northern Washington. I could be wrong. I think I've heard of that. This huge erosion pattern. Yeah. It, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is that when you look at it, what you find is, is that there's a lot of formations that look like whirlpools, right? Yeah. That yeah. look like it had just had it was violent there's no other way to describe it if you look mm -hmm. at the landscape and i did a bit of surveying up there so i was looking at it pretty hard yep you can see that this was a a massive event where a lot of water swept over <laughs> yeah lands and and basically caused massive erosion in a short period of time well we're going to talk a little bit about that too <clears throat> but the point of this, I mean, you could make many points with this. One of the things I like to point out, <clears throat> all of these mass extinction events and scientists are doing their best to estimate what percentage of life on Earth was destroyed. Uh, every one of uh, for the mass extinction events, they all fall between like um, 60 and 85 percent of all life on Earth that died. Right. My question to you is, why aren't any of them 100 percent? Mm. they can't be right if you're if you're a neo-darwinist there has to be something to continue or darwinism fails right evolution fails yep but somehow magically something that killed every last species dinosaurs on earth and in the sea somehow some little marmot survived so that we could evolve from that Ugh. from scratch again catastrophism makes human evolution impossible right makes macro evolution in my view impossible <clears throat> which if you're a, a dar <clears throat> a darwinian it's a horrible thing to admit because then you have to admit intelligent design of some sort right which is going to call which is now it now becomes a faith question <laughs> right a lot of them don't want to go there well they get canceled too you know Right, yeah. So you can see where this is kind of leading. Um, he nibbly pointed out, and he says it's a no-brainer. If the Earth gets struck by a killer asteroid, and killer asteroid, by the way, is defined as any an asteroid that's about 6 to 12 miles in diameter. So about the size of uh, St. George. <laughs> I was going to say, that's not going in the at, of things, that's not that long. 
right? I mean, which is going tens of thousands of miles per hour. The kinetic energy is almost right. incalculable. But we're going to talk about that too. That if such a catastrophic event were to occur, of course, it's going to cause the uh, tectonic plates to shift, which is going to trigger all, all kinds of volcanic activity, including mega volcanoes like we have at Yellowstone. So we shouldn't be surprised that they accompany one another. So that killer asteroids, volcanic events, and mass extinction events, surprise, surprise, coincide. Yep. This is this is beautiful. Yeah. So what we see is the Earth being erased effectively, at least, I mean, really effectively, eight times that we know of. The last extinction event was about 10,000 years ago. The end of the Ice Age, the woolly mammoth, saber-toothed tiger, caveman. Interesting. That around the Younger Dryas period? Uh, that's a bit above my pay grade. Probably, I think that's probably right, if I recall. Okay. But I'm not, I'm not going to commit to that. That wasn't part of my homework, sorry. No, you're good. Here's a map of Earth's known major craters Ooh. the larger the circle the larger the impact so the diameter of the circle represents how big the crater is this big one is 100 kilometers across which is about 67 miles Ooh. this one here the chickstalub is the one that killed the dinosaurs it's about 120 miles in diameter oh we have this huge one in South Africa, a huge one in Australia, this huge one um, in Canada, <clears throat> and all these others, which inevitably is going to have some impact. Do you have a date on that one in Canada? Uh, the color indicates when it happened. So Chicxulub is going to be between 10 and 100. The one in Canada is going to be between 100 and 400, so it would be one of those earlier. Okay. Probably, probably this one, I'm guessing. Right. Uh, probably no Siberian. <clears throat> so I have a number of questions. Okay. Uh, well, the first comment was prior to roughly 20 or 30 years ago, no one believed that the Earth had ever been struck by a killer asteroid. We look at the moon, and it's just peppered with craters. We look at Mars, and we see scary big craters. But we, the Earth doesn't look like the moon. Clearly because there is the Earth is alive. There's flora, fauna, erosion, and all that sort of stuff. Until we got into space and began looking at the Earth from the space shuttle. And you'll see some of these photographs, which make it abundantly clear. Because we thought that the atmosphere of the Earth was a, a, a perfect dome of protection. And certainly the smaller asteroids burn up in the atmosphere, but the bigger ones, no, they make it through. And there are bigger ones. So here's a trick question. Why are all the asteroid impact strikes on the land? Probably. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a stab. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take a stab. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going to refer to you on this. But my thought would be is if... Well, maybe this doesn't hold water, but I'm going to say it anyway. Not because I sound stupid even saying it. Maybe <laughs> because when when the landmass was all one, there was more landmass to hit. 
That's a pretty good guess. Notice, is there a pattern to these asteroid strikes or do they seem random? It looks like a random distribution. It does. We don't see them in the unpopulated areas as much because people haven't been around to look at them. Right. Or where there's heavy vegetation, we don't, they're harder to recognize. But of course, they're going to be a randomized distribution on the surface of the Earth. They just are. Right. Which means we have at least as many asteroids that hit what? The oceans. Right. And I have yet to see anybody address this in any of the literature. It's, it hasn't crossed their minds. If we had a, a killer asteroid the size of the Chicxulub asteroid strike in the middle of the Pacific or the Atlantic, or more significantly, in the North Pole, what effect would that have? So, worldwide flooding. I mean... So what? How could that be? Noah's flood's a joke. Who can believe that? Well, catastrophism. When I I brought up the younger Dryas for a specific reason, every so often the Earth goes through what's called the torrid meteor belt, and we see, and that's why the one up in Canada caught my eye. Um, about twelve thousand five hundred years ago. There's a hypothesis that as we pass through that torrid meteor stream, that we took one of these to the to the Florentine ice shelf, and that was part of the reason for for that mass extinction event that that took place. Let's consider for a minute at the uh, the end of the ice age was not. Uh, was not gradual it was sudden to the extent that in northern siberia they find the remains of woolly mammoths perfectly preserved as if stuck in a freezer standing up on all fours with food in their mouths frozen i mean just thinking about that right so sudden so sudden, no time to run, no time to hide. They were buried done with they were buried with uh, uh, hyper freezing ice. Right. In fact, they're standing up, but they're kind of crushed by the weight of it. <clears throat> and they've been standing like that ever since they died ten to twelve thousand years ago. <clears throat> the meat <clears throat> was so fresh, they were feeding it to their um, dogs, their sled dogs. Whoa. What would cause that to happen? Now, I'm going I'm going to go way out on a limb and everybody out there in podcast land prepare to laugh because Ken Peterson thinks he has Noah's flood figured out. <laughs> I love this. Go for it. <laughs> My man riff. <laughs> Which would explain first of all the time change People lived longer before the flood. Or was the length of the day changed? Because mm. that's very sudden. Um, the flood, if there were these massive quantities of water that were locked up somewhere and then were released, where did it go? Why did it subside? 
right? Right. And I know the problem is there's not enough water on the earth to subside all of the land mass. But that does not take into account a massive worldwide tsunami, which a killer asteroid would certainly accomplish. I was also thinking, when you look at all the pre-Diluvian um, civilizations, they're all near the equatorial regions. Right. One in Japan, one in India, one off the coast, uh, well, uh, one in the Gulf, off the coast of the Yucatan. And they're underwater today. Why? Because <clears throat> in the Ice Age, far more of the world's water was locked up in the polar ice caps. We okay. had glaciers coming down into the forty-eight United, the northern 48 states. So the sea levels were lower at one time because there was more water locked up in the ice caps. All right. That makes then sense. I, <clears throat> then I was reading in First Enoch where um, Noah describes the flood. And he said there are two things that stuck out. He saw the the sky falling and swallowing. I, I wish I had time to look it up. But the sky fell and mm -hmm. destroyed the earth. And he said the earth became inclined during the flood. <clears throat> if an asteroid of sufficient size were to strike the northern polar region, which is not occupied by a landmass, it's just a big old ice cap, at the proper trajectory and speed and mass, it could shift the Earth's rotational axis. The, oh. the ignorant presumption is that the rotational speed and the rotational axis of the Earth has never varied. Right. Why would, why would we necessarily assume that, considering catastrophism? Well, and we have modern-day precedent for that. I remember reading an article, gosh, I want to say seven, eight years ago, that China had built such a massive dam. Now it wasn't yeah. a lot, but it was enough that it threw a little bit of a wobble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Change the Earth's uh, inertia. Yeah, yeah. And so that's that's entirely possible. But but for the sake of argument, let me say this: How do you account for the Genesis account of uh, the flood when it says that basically, like there were water was coming out of the earth as well right right well we know that there are subterranean oceans right and consider we know what the effect of a killer asteroid is it's going to cause tectonic shifts okay which are going to cause that and there's that giant there's a giant rift in the middle of the atlantic which is a split and if that were to happen suddenly that could be the case but i maintain especially given the evidence of northern siberia and how those things died that so here's here's again Peter putting himself out there for people to laugh at. A killer asteroid of sufficient size struck the North Pole with sufficient velocity, mass, and trajectory that it shifted the Earth's axis, which would do what to the polar ice caps? It caused them to melt it would, because it would introduce seasons. Right. So, <clears throat> so well, the sea levels would rise, habitable lands would increase on either side of the equator. And if it would affect, it could affect the rotational speed. Where suddenly, instead of if if time was passing more quickly, right, from Adam to Noah, yep. a day a day could have been an eight hour long day, which would explain why you and I have to take naps every day, because our bodies weren't made for twenty four hour days. 
They were right. made for eight-hour days kind of a thing. And who would know? It's not like they had digital devices. Right. You know, no, no one would be sitting there going, man, this day just seems to drag on and on. I must just be getting older, man. And no one would know except for the eight people on the ark. Anyway. Right. So, yeah, that's what I think happened. Now, not long after I had thought of that, and I only share it with other weirdos and people on your podcast, they did discover a significant crater in northern Greenland. Really? Showing at the very least precedent for such thinking. Well, of course, if if uh, if asteroids strikes on this Earth or at a randomized distribution, they will have hit everywhere eventually. Right. And yeah. so, and so that is a viable, scientifically plausible, and uh, explanation with precedent that would explain Noah's flood. And then, of course, the erosion features in Washington and elsewhere that shows some catastrophic deluge, short-term, right. catastrophic short-term deluge. And and I, I want to stop here for a second and just kind of put a disclaimer out here too, right? Because I know you well enough. You're not saying, because a lot of people will look at this from like the the idea of, you know, God's a little bit involved in this, right? That that deist argument that he just kind of winds up the universe and lets it go. You're not saying that. You're saying that this was all intentional with a very real God behind it putting this down. Well, see, again, that's my mind at work. Right. God's not God's not a magician. Right. God is the supreme scientist. Right. Right? Yep. He can do things beyond our understanding. But we've also seen him do things that we do understand how it was accomplished, but right. it was accomplished for his purposes. So I'm not I'm not trying to explain away miracles. Right. I'm trying to understand the mind and purposes of God and how it works. And when you look at the science, you start to see a pattern. Right. Eight mass extinction events on this planet. There's a pattern. Right. And the next mass extinction event has been prophesied. The hmm. earth will burn as an oven. And the, all that is all the wicked will be burned as stubble. This blew my mind when someone was trying to the mechanism. How did the chicks dilute? Oh, let's I want to show a couple of pictures. <clears throat> this is the Behringer crater in Arizona. It's a small one. See that road and the little building on the side? Yeah. It's about seven to eight miles across. True. People thought it, people thought it was a volcanic event that created that. We now know it was a small meteor, right? Which probably had a regional impact and effect, like possibly described in Third Nephi, a darkness they could feel. <clears throat> this is one seen from space in Africa, 17 kilometers or roughly 12 miles across. Whoa. 200 million years ago. You will also see <clears throat> in that graph that you saw more than one asteroid strikes in the same time period right not uncommon when we saw that <clears throat> uh, i forget the name of the asteroid that struck jupiter that we actually saw right with hubble it broke up the shoemaker levy asteroid it broke up into like three or four different asteroids and struck in like a chain of events oh. that would happen on earth too dude so you'd have a distributed disaster <clears throat> but here's the big one 
<clears throat> Is that the one off the Yucatan? That's it. Why did it take so long for us to see it? It was mostly underwater. That is correct. And it was so big and so deep, densely forested, we couldn't see it other than with LIDAR mm -hmm. or some sort of uh, um, uh, means beyond our, our visual range. You know who you can <clears throat> thank for that, Ken? Thank you. you. Thank your local surveyor. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. That's because a lazy surveyor was like, I don't want to walk through that crap. Let's see if we can come up with something. And the way they discovered it, they were uh, in the Cretaceous geological layer, they kept finding iridium. Oh. The element of iridium only occurs in meteorites. Right. That's not a, a natural earth element. And shocked quartz because of the heat. And they all found it pointing in the same direction. Now, shocked quartz, that's that's what they figure happens when you heat up sand. Superheated. Quickly, super, yeah, right? Exactly. Okay. So these, these um, particles weren't pointing in any, they were all pointed in the same direction, indicating that they had been shot out from the same point. So they were, you know, finding this iridium all around the world, and they are all pointing back to this central location, this Chicxulub crater in Yucatan, and that's how they found it. And that's how they identify the ages of these craters, because nice. they can find the iridium from that crater in that geological layer. It's, say what you want about scientists. They really are ingenious. Yes, they well, are. They don't have whole picture. None of us do. But I, I, I love how hard they work and how smart they are. So this, uh, so what does a killer asteroid look like? It will leave a crater 100 miles across, and they they estimate the asteroid itself was between six to 12 miles in diameter. <clears throat> I, uh, now that what remains to be answered is what is the mechanism that killed everything? The shock wave would have been enormous and killed everything within a thousand miles. In fact, they. They found some of the remains in North America of the Cretaceous period all smashed up together, like in this big tidal event. Ooh. Whether it was, you know, an earth tidal wave or water, who can say? But one scientist said something very interesting. When a, a killer asteroid strikes a landmass, it throws all of this ejectus, all this material up into the atmosphere at supersonic speeds. And they can calculate how much that ejecta is. And he calculated the amount of energy that was released with that ejecta and calculated that it would superheat the Earth's atmosphere to like 600 degrees Fahrenheit instantaneously that would incinerate everything on the surface of the planet. Ooh. And I immediately thought of the prophecy in the Old Testament that the earth will burn as an oven. You know, the other reason I love these conversations is because sometimes we as mankind tend to really like to thump our chest, right? <laughs> and don't get me wrong. We do some cool stuff. Yeah. Right? I, I'm not taking away from that. I'm a fan of mankind. I think I think there are times that that not that God's ever shocked, but there's times I can imagine him going, look at that. They're, 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 they're about to, you know, 
and and forgive me for getting emotional about it. I had a child who was this way. You know, when when we implant something so kids can hear for the first time, right? I I know that has to not shock our father, but at least have him look and go look at look at what they can do, right? Um, but with that. If we're not careful, we thump our chest at that, and we say we have no need for God. And sometimes these conversations have a way of humbling us, right? Like, and and put us back in our place. Like, you know, it's it's a fragile thing we have created, civilization, and all the tech and everything. I remember when I first became aware that the Earth is routinely struck by killer asteroids, and that we haven't found we're looking for them desperately because we know. It can happen again. We know it will happen again. We have seen it happen in our lifetimes, just little ones that uh, exploded in the air over the city in Russia, right. broke all the windows and killed people just because it exploded in the air. The ten I mean, That's just a little thing. Yeah, That's just a little thing. <clears throat> this is my favorite crater. <clears throat> this is in Canada. That thing in the bottom left hand is the tail of the space shuttle (laughs) the only way they didn't realize this crater was here until they built the dam oh and and the crater filled up with water and then from space they went oh look a crater that's a big one that is a big one holy cow now here's the sobering image so um The world has been desperately seeking these um, potential, what they call near-Earth objects, potential killer asteroids, and already conducting experiments to see if they can stop one or deflect one, because it would be the end of uh, the human race as we know it, as we have seen in the past. And uh, that is why Elon Musk is so desperately trying to get men on Mars to double our chances of survival if something like that should happen. <laughs> I mean, he's serious. <clears throat> so what we're looking at in this picture, every green dot that you see is a, a near-Earth object, asteroid. Oh. Uh, thus far, they've discovered 18,000 of them. Yeah. They estimate that's that's 95% of them is what they're estimating. Uh, the Earth, the Earth's orbit is the blue line here. Right. So it's kind of a busy place. The inner solar system. You know, and and I think that picture there illustrates just the idea that there's a God makes it very, very evident. I have a buddy who is he's a surveyor, but he got his degree in physics, and. I mean, he's just extremely, extremely intelligent. And one day I asked, you know, asked him, because he's not religious at all. I was like, do you believe in God? And he's like, I kind of have to. And I was like, why is that? And he's like, well, one day I got to drinking and I thought I'd go ahead and run the statistical (laughs) probability of what the chance that the Earth should be hit by one of these, these objects. And when he started doing the math, he's like, it's nothing short of miraculous. Because the excuse me, the science of statistical probability tells you that we should be pebbled with these things all the time and not just little ones. Yeah, we we should not 
be here. Right. I mean, I mean, let's take into account abiogenesis. How did life, how did complex, how did RNA, DNA, reproducing RNA, DNA, assemble itself? There is no amount of geological time in which that could happen. Right. Statistical probability is, I know there are like 30 zeros, which, uh, which is, statistically speaking, a statistical impossibility that life should self-assemble on this magical terrarium floating in space. And that it, we should have experienced dozens upon dozens of mass extinction events. And yet here we are in our shirt sleeves. Right. <laughs> no, no. <clears throat> so here's this uh, graph of the mass extinction events and the estimated percentages of life that perished notice none of them are a hundred percent right because they can't be or else we have to admit the existence of, of intelligence a higher intelligence so uh eric skousen again as we shall see of the life forms that live or have lived on the earth there are many kinds whose unrelated ancestry can only be traced to origins not of this earth their ancestors have come from different planetary systems throughout the galaxy. He goes on, before modern life could be brought to the Earth, the scriptures. So did life on Earth come from other planets within our solar system? Clearly not, right? Before modern life could be brought to the Earth, the scriptures tell us that all remnants of living preparatory life had to be removed from the physical globe. Of course, this would have included any hominids or near human-like animals than living on the earth. Mm. Now, the world and the earth are not synonymous. Right. The world of Adam has nothing to do with the world of the dinosaurs directly. Right. Yes, dinosaur remains fuel our automobiles and that sort of stuff, right? Which I guess part of the grand scheme of things, but we're not directly related. Right. Now, uh, creations that do not fill the measure of their creation are destroyed. Gratefully for us, the restored gospel tells us we, most, some of us, are filling the measure of our creation to be exalted, resurrected, us and the world. And we'll talk more about that and where that happens and all that sort of thing. The question that has to be asked. Why did God create these previous creations to fail? Would he? I don't think so. This is pure speculation, not based on anybody else's, on Eric Skousen, nor Colopterum went there. But we know that there are other kingdoms of glory. We know that there are other priesthoods and orders. And they're not all stupid people sitting on their thumbs. I have to believe that there are other creative forces out there that are not clearly not god and that this earth and we'll talk about location uh and brigham young i'll let the cat out of the bag now brigham young said that when the earth was world of adam was first formed it was nigh unto kolob because when adam and eve were placed on this world it was in a terrestrial state death had not yet entered in and this is what most people like uh bruce mcconkey the problem he had 
with other creations dying, living and dying before Adam and Eve got here, because it was the fall of Adam and Eve that brought death into the world. The problem with that assumption is to assume that the earth has always existed nigh unto Kolob. Clearly, it has not. Right. I want to really prior to Adam and Eve, the earth was not in a terrestrial state. It oh. was in a lower state where telestial creatures could be put on here to experiment upon or whatever, to, to live out their lives and to fail. So that matter unorganized that had suffered a mass extinction event could be brought yonder as matter unorganized. We will take of these materials and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell. Okay. So they brought that matter unorganized. Yes. Let's, let's break this down for a minute because I think my head just exploded. So um, when you say other forces of creation that aren't gods, what, what are you referring to there? Well, all the restored gospel teaches us is that there are three degrees of glory. Right. All of which surpass our understanding. Okay. So they're not idiots and they're not technologically functionless. And we do know that the terrestrial is going to be busy ministering to the telestial. I mean, our comprehension of eternal realms, orders, and worlds is next to nothing. Right. We don't know what they're doing. Right. We know that it's not the uh, holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God, which Joseph F. Smith said is the only order we know anything about. Right. The grand, we know the grand purpose of the order of the Son of God. We don't know what the purposes are of these other orders. And how many of these other orders could there be? Okay. I see. There is no space in which there is no kingdom. And right. there is no kingdom in which there is no space, according to Section 88. So they're okay. doing something. And right. certainly they, they don't have, they're not. The only beings that are all-knowing and all-powerful are exalted beings. Right. That's Satan's great failings, despite his great knowledge, is that he does not know the future. Right. God okay. does. Okay. Because... Section 130 tells us he has this, all celestial planets are made of our Yerman th <clears throat> Thumma, <clears throat> on which all things past, present, and future are manifest. The, this giant crystal ball. The, the one related. eternal now. Hmm? Yeah. The one eternal now, so to speak. Well, exactly. But the angels reside on a sea of glass and fire. Right. Which is Yerman Thumma. This earth and its glorified and resurrected state. We'll, we'll read this later in the presentation, will become a sea of glass and fire upon which all things, past, present, future, will be manifest for those who dwell upon it. Things pertaining to a lower order. If we want to see things pertaining to a higher order, we have to go to the Urim Thummim that is given to us as we enter the celestial kingdom upon which is inscribed the new name. Okay. So that's how God knows. Satan doesn't get one of those. Right. <laughs> in order to have one of those, you have to be able to dwell in everlasting burnings and have that glory. Clearly, he can't and won't, never will. Right. And so that's his disadvantage and why he keeps fighting because he thinks he has a chance. But God knows the end from the beginning. Satan does not. Right. Okay. Anyway. Well, that was the digression. <clears throat> in Earth in the beginning, when Jehovah and Michael came down to the physical Earth, they found a crustal surface of matter unorganized, 
a physical globe that had gone through the preparatory stages, but was still so chaotic and unorganized that it could not harbor nor sustain modern life forms. Like Mars. Right. You know what would really kill me? Is if we dig down deep enough in Mars and dig up some dinosaur bones. <laughs> Which is what they're trying to do. Right. They they already believe Mars once had an atmosphere. Right. Mars once had oceans, big ones on its surface, and water that flowed on its surface. There is the possibility that there were ancient life forms there. Right. And it, it, Mars, like Earth, is going through the preparatory stages. Okay. It, is it possible that when Earth is taken into the celestial realm, that Mars will take its place? Who yeah. Say? It's possible. I don't know. <laughs> he goes on. It should be pointed out that none of Earth's modern life forms originated from within our present solar system. No planet or moon in our solar system harbors advanced life forms. This means that the Earth's life forms had to come from distant solar systems. Actually, he should have said distant star systems. <laughs> our star is called Sol, which is why we call it solar. Anyway, right. hundreds, if not thousands of light years away. These are the secret springs or the origins of modern life forms, as Brigham Young called them. There's Brigham again, speculating like crazy that life was brought here from other worlds, which would also explain, ugh, this really conundrum, deep question. So these prehistoric life forms are clearly so different from us that we didn't descend from them. Right. But you cannot ignore the similarities between all of us. Even right. the ugly dinosaurs had eyes, nose, and ears, and hands, and feet, and teeth, and a stomach. Right. We're related. And our DNA, and the DNA that we have sampled from prehistoric life forms, are similar. So somehow, all life, as dissimilar as we are, at some point, are related. I have no answer for that. I think it's awesome, though. Um. Which brings us to um, hominids, prehistoric hominids, human-like creatures that are not us. Right. The Smithsonian. You know how many of them we now know of? No. Think how we know of? How many? 20, 23. Neanderthal, Denisovian, and uh, 21 others that walked on the surface of this planet hundreds of thousands of years ago. So I, I want to make this clear, and I'm going to ask the question because I, I, I just want to know. If evolution is really a thing, shouldn't we see some sort of bridge species? Yeah. And or, we don't, correct? Or, or like we see in all of the other prehistoric life forms, of at least the tertiary period, uh, woolly mammoth, saber-toothed tiger, we see a variation of those species among us today. Or, you know, like when within the, the, the cat category or the dog category, we see hundreds and sometimes thousands and in the insects, millions of species, variations of that one species. Right. Not so with Homo sapien. One. That's it. That appears suddenly. 
I mean, now they, they are saying now, and this is curious, but believe it or not, they have actually done DNA analysis of Denisovian mm-hmm. and Neanderthal. Can't get enough of the Mormon Renegade podcast? Well, good news. We're on Patreon, and there's three packages that you can choose from. The first one, the Slightly Rowdy Package, allows you to hear the podcast without all those pesky commercials getting in the way. For those who want a slightly more in-depth experience, there's the Stirring It Up Package, where you can hear ad-free audio, ad-free video, and transcripts. Finally, for those who want to go full Renegade, that package is available too, where you can get everything in the previous two packages, plus an extra show where myself and Ben Winfield break down the news of the day from a very Mormon point of view. You will also get exclusive access to Renegade Chat, and on there you'll be able to talk to others about the show or whatever topics are on your mind. Go to Patreon today and get your exclusive content. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by DeseretFlag.com. I've said this before and I really mean it. Mormonism isn't just a religion, it's a culture. As such, it has its own vernacular and practices, but also its own symbols. And those symbols become even more important and prominent when you look back into our history. Perhaps one of the most recognizable symbols of Mormonism is the Deseret flag. This is the flag that I use as cover art in this podcast. This was also used for a good chunk of time during the Pioneer era in Utah. Now, today we have people who want to replace the existing Utah flag with some other progressive monstrosity. Well, I think it's damn past time that we start pushing back here a little bit in Utah. Our friends at Defending Utah are here to help you with that. Now, if you go to DeseretFlag.com, you can now purchase your own Deseret State flag. It's time here that we start making ourselves known and join the resistance against those who seek to rewrite our state's history. Go to DeseretFlag.com or check out the link in this episode's page show notes and get yours today. And they are genetically so distinct from us that we are not the same species. We're humanoid. Right. But here's the crazy thing. There are certain uh, Europeans and Asians that, according to scientists, 2% of their DNA is Neanderthal. See, and now enters the thought of pre-Adamites, correct? So, and, and the Darwinians love this because it shows this continuation that, oh, Homo sapien must have coexisted with Neanderthal. And even though they were different species, magically were able to produce offspring, like horses and donkeys producing mules. Right. Or, or if... If life was transplanted on Earth from other worlds, clearly there would be some sharing of the DNA. Here's the other cool thing to consider. Uh, some have taken uh, domesticated dog DNA, and they can estimate the time it takes for those genetic changes to occur uh, because the dog is related to the wolf. Right. But how long ago did the dog... Um, uh, variation separate from the wolf. And they estimate, I think it's, if I recall, it's about 30,000 years. But the Darwinists are going to say, ha ha, see, 30,000 years ago, the dog split, blah, 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 blah. But the, um, uh, what would I call myself? The um, punctuated equilibrium guy is suggesting that that split may indeed have happened 30,000 Earth years ago but not necessarily on earth. Okay. All right. Yeah. The possibilities are endless in terms of, and 
they, they I, people go crazy talking about prehistoric life and life forms and creation, created periods and all this sort of stuff. I find it the most fascinating puzzle in the world that God gave us. <laughs> Millions of clues. And every time we get a new clue, it completely upsets the puzzle. For yeah. example, yes. Oh, go ahead. Finish, finish that thought. You've seen the infamous tree of life. Mm -hmm. A diagram showing how all life forms came from one primitive life form. Right. That tree of life, you know how that was put together? Uh -uh. Using the science of phylogy. Phylogy, yes. Where they say, see, the human hand kind of looks like the ape hand. Therefore, they're related because they look the same. That's phylogy. It doesn't seem like good science. But it's all they had. Right. And the tree of life is based on that. The scientists who are most frequently, as I understand it, jumping from the Darwinian ship are molecular biologists. Molecular biologists are those who examine and categorize DNA of the different species. Okay. If the phylo, uh, is it phylogy or phylogenic? Anyway, um, phylogy. At any rate, <clears throat> what the molecular biologists are, are discovering is that the uh, the related the species as they relate uh, relative to DNA have nothing to do with phylogy. The phylogy as a science is false, right? Utterly and completely false. There was an article when this was first discovered. It was called "The Tree of Life Is in Tatters." The tree of life is in tatters because the molecular biologists have completely destroyed it. Um, I'm going to go crazy if I don't check this really quick. So here we go. Phylogeny. Uh, I'm glad I looked that up. Phylogeny. The tree of life is based on phylogeny, and it's a branch of science that's been utterly and completely disproven. The tree of life is in tatters. And so as science does, as the science should do, it's self-correcting. Blah blah blah. <clears throat> so, but before huh? before we move yeah. on to the where, I I want unless we're going to cover it later. Are are we going to get into like pre Adamites later, or no? Let's have that discussion. Okay, let's do it now. Because I feel like that this is kind of an important spot to have this conversation. <clears throat> so there is. Neanderthal, Denisovan, they're all running around, right? And and I'm trying to not necessarily at the same time. Okay. Not at the same time. One or the other, right? Because we are finding common DNA in humans. In, in one case, yes. As well yeah. as as taken from that sample. So Adam is placed in the garden. The fall happens. He goes out. What are the what are the <laughs> trying to be careful here? What would have been the purpose of the pre Adamites existence then? Um, this is where we need to start talking about timetables here. Um, Doctrine and Covenant says that the temporal existence of the earth is 7,000 years, right? Ken Peterson believes that Adam was placed on the earth 6,000 years ago. Well, let me back up that the earth fell 6,000 years ago, okay? Okay. Um, these pre-Adamites, uh, they date to 100,000 to 300,000 to 400,000 years ago. 
as Hugh Nibley said, they have nothing to do with us directly. Okay. They were long gone when Adam came here, that the earth had been erased because you know, with the mass extinction events, the earth has been erased, uh, massive ones, at least eight times that we know right. of. And so all remaining, all of these 99.9% .9 of species that are uh, that have ever existed on this planet are extinct. Those pre-Adamites would be part of that. And it, they would fit the perfect description of not filling the measure of their creation. Okay. But there had to have been some leftover in order for us to have trace <laughs> DNA, I, correct? I didn't know. I, I didn't know you were no. I didn't know you were neo-Darwinian. Just I'm, you know how I you know how I explained. I'm not. I'm trying to I'm kidding understand you, where 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 the that Neanderthal and Homo sapiens shared two percent DNA or so they say. Okay. All right. I see where you're right. Going. Now, I'm not necessarily doubting the science, but two percent is hardly convincing. Right. Okay. Number right. one. But remember how we talked about uh, scientists figured that the dog uh varied from the wild uh, canine 30,000 years ago. That could have happened elsewhere. Okay. I'm okay. saying that that wherever Adam was brought from could easily have had Neanderthal DNA in him to have okay. passed down to a certain, to the Shemites apparently. Okay. Okay. I, I see. I see what you're saying now. Okay. That's what I was trying to make sense of there. So yes. the, the, the 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 theory i guess that that you're thinking is that all those atomites pre-atomites were gone by the time adam shows up in the garden and the earth falls that, that's what the timeline suggests okay okay Perfect. i mean adam wow adam's a latecomer right adam and his posterity we're we're the new kids right right now let, let me ask you this question because this has some far-reaching implications here mm-hmm <clears throat> you, you subscribe to the idea that Adam was brought here 6,000 years ago. Yeah. 6,000 earth years ago. It fell 6,000 years ago. He was placed on it before the fall. And we don't know exactly how long they were in the garden before they partook of the forbidden fruit. Okay. Okay. So I read so somewhere. I can't remember. I read somebody had a good idea of how long that was. I know. Or in the day. It talks about that they would in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die yeah okay oh that and you know what that is explaining how old was adam when he died 900 and 900 and some change yeah right how long is a day thousand a thousand years, years. yeah in the yeah. day thou eatest thou shalt surely die and he died in one cold up day that's yeah. what i was reading okay now I'm going to ask kind of a loaded question that that is purely speculative, right? And I want oh, everyone <laughs> I, I want everyone to know I'm I'm not saying this is the case. I this just has my wheels turning now, and I got to ask the question. <clears throat> so, if Adam was brought here, the Earth fell six thousand years ago, right? Start right. the start the clock at six thousand from there. Cha ching. Now. We are finding structures, megaliths, that are well older than that 6,000-year range. Like the most famous being Topkepi or something like that? Topkepi Tepe, yep. 
Yeah, completely. And, and, and we're even seeing evidence of that with the Sphinx because the Sphinx seems to have been eroded. Pre predates the pyramids, yeah. Predates the pyramids. Yeah. So now we start talking about rather than either A, the Denisovans, or any of those other 99.99% that were wiped, that's that's kind of an advanced civilization, right? Well, Stone Age it, stuff. Right, right. But but it shows some level of sophistication right. other than what science right. for a long time ascribed to this the these beings, I guess, for lack of a better word. Humans tend to be um have have a great deal of hubris. Mm-hmm. Um, because humans are capable of extraordinary things, as the current world clearly demonstrates. I mean, really miraculous things that we're capable of. Right. Um, <clears throat> we tend to think that we're the most uh, advanced species in the known universe. <laughs> right. That's hubris. Or to think we're the only uh, intelligent species that have ever walked the face of this planet well yeah and, and, the and, only reason... I, and i guess the reason i went there is to show that right it, this idea that it's it, we're, we're we focus on that six thousand years for good reason that's our parentage that's our lineage right but there was stuff happening outside of that for quite a while well yeah that's the whole point yeah there there has been some form of life walking around on the face of this planet for 500 million years if our science is correct living and dying on the surface of this planet and within the last million years humanoids right yeah and humanoids who are apparently capable of making musical instruments of having burial rites and burying each other of creating jewelry, of uh, being agrarian, agrarian society. And I don't know, and, and, and I suppose we're surprised because it shocks us out of our hubris to think we're it, right? But <clears throat> as Hugh Nibley points out in one of his essays, the children, the, the children of God and all of these um, pre-Adamites, these hominids, even though they may not be homo sapien, they are humanoid. Right. Which is in the likeness of God in some fashion or another. Right. Um, some of these ancient texts talk about Earth as being a God-bearing world. As opposed to what? Worlds right. that don't bear gods. Right. Right? So that's apparently an extraordinary thing. And the, the previous worlds which have come and gone on this planet were not God-bearing worlds. Hence, they did not fill the measure of their creation. This creation, the world of Adam, right, holy, quite God. wondrously, is fulfilling, is filling the measure of our creation to carry on the great purpose of God, which is to bring to pass the immortality and the eternal life of man. To propagate so, his species. To propagate, the, to propagate the plan. Yep. Awesome. All right, yeah, that was it. I just wanted to cover that. Now that we've blown everybody, oh so, yeah, we we shouldn't be surprised if they're hominids and they had brains equal in size to us. If they had some level of intelligence, right? But clearly, 
not the level of intelligence that would allow them to become exalted. Yeah. Yep. Whew. And like, and we shouldn't be surprised that the the de- the levels of intelligence, the degrees of intelligence, should vary all across the spectrum. I mean, we have intelligences that ha- inhabit uh, a ladybug, right. or a worm, right? You know, or a rose. Everything that is alive is organized matter, meaning that it has been infused with life, intelligence, and spirit matter. And so and those degrees in, of intelligence all vary and all fill the measure of their creation, which is why the, every all of those things will be resurrected as well. Wow. It's expansive. It's in my it, 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 and it just <clears throat> gives birth to so many other questions absolutely all right so now we're on to where brigham young when earth was framed and brought into existence and man was placed upon it notice how he says framed like framing a building right it was it it was near the throne of our father in heaven which that's where kolob is and when man fell the earth fell into space and took up its abode in this planetary system and the sun became our light. Mm. Now, this is where everybody tends to jump ship because this is just crazy talk. God can't transport a planet. Kind of defi- defies the name of God, though, right? I mean, like, right? What God, what can or can't God do, right? <clears throat> he goes on. Brigham Young explained that this is precisely why the direct consequence of Adam's transgression is called the fall. When man sinned, the earth was hurled, this is quoting him now, millions of miles away from its first position. And that is why it was called the fall. Mm. What expansive thinking. How could God possibly transport a planet even the speed of light, uh, millions of miles. Well, <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm letting this cat out of the bag. If Kolob was nigh into the galactic core, that's 27,000, 28,000 light years from where we currently are. For the Earth to traverse that distance, even at the speed of light, would take 27,000 years. Right, but that's if, that's horribly inefficient. Right, but if you if if we start applying maybe some other things like <clears throat> Einstein, a, a Rosenberg bridge, those sorts of things, which now where would you get such an idea? Uh, that's just crazy talk. I, I watch a lot of science fiction. <laughs> I don't know. I I just again I just read read things, and it sticks sometimes. But it, there, there was something that that Einstein came up with where, where, given the right conditions, space could kind of fold in on itself, right? And if that's the case, then the distance gets significantly less. Let and me I'm read. Completely speculating. <laughs> Let me just say, I'm completely speculating. I'm reading out of Joseph Smith history. This is where I got the idea. Here's Joseph Smith again being 150 years ahead or 100 years ahead of his time. <clears throat> the angel Moroni had been talking to him, right? Mm-hmm. Verse 43, 
<clears throat> and after this communication, I saw the light in the room begin to gather immediately around the person of him who had been speaking to me. And it continued to do so until the room was again left dark, except just around him. Now understand, uh, this is a, a, a teenager describing something happening with light that he could not possibly ever have witnessed. He has seen candlelight, daylight, moonlight, starlight, and lightning. Right. And he's seeing this light, which is gathering, focusing <clears throat> around him. Everything else is dark, except right around Moroni. And I love how succinct he is and how matter-of-fact it is. And he doesn't riff on it. He just this is what happened. Then instantly I saw, as it were, a conduit. What do we call that conduit? Oh. A pipe, a tunnel. Right. A conduit open right up into heaven. So not only did he see the conduit, he saw the other side of it. Okay, so he, he is seeing kind of that, for lack of a better term. I'm sure there's a way cooler name for it. Let's, and let's go on, he says. That's right. And he, Moroni, ascended in this tunnel till he entirely disappeared. And the room was left as it had been before this heavenly light had made its appearance. Ooh. There's this there's this book that's been out called Mormon Doctrine in the Apocrypha. Yeah, I've heard of it. I know the guy who wrote it. I guess he's just an absolute stud of an individual. Um, <laughs> God, can, and I, this is unplanned for, but I want... Oh, nuts. I'll just describe it. The section on pillar light, pillar of light stream, it's called pillar of fire. It's called a lot of different things. That, yeah, now, now I'm making connections since you said that, that the pillar of light that comes, that Joseph sees God the Father and Jesus standing in. Ooh. It's consistent. Yeah. These extra canonical descriptions take that concept even further. Okay. My favorite is the one that's in the Dead Sea Scrolls, where it describes the uh, Pillar of Light bus station. <laughs> the Grand <laughs> Central Station of the Pillar of Lights in heaven, where these beings of light are continually coming and going through these portals as they accomplish their work. Which would make make perfect sense with that whole my house is a house of order thing, right? You're, you oh, know, no, I'm sure God just does things willy-nilly. Right. <laughs> wow. So, the, yes, God has an order. Yes, God has a system. Yes, beings can travel <laughs> untold distances in an instant, just like walking through a door because they are so much more advanced than we can possibly imagine. So, yeah. so if a wormhole is the best way to go 30,000 light years from Earth to God, why wouldn't it be the best? And without any danger or anything happening to it, no, no getting wind blown or smashed to atoms, you know, God has right. it all figured out. But that could never be true for a planet. It's too big. Right. Right. God doesn't have enough power to make a big. He can make a little wormhole, but not big. <laughs> anyway, that it seems pretty. Joseph Smith and that didn't realize what he was doing in that one verse was describing. How could he possibly know that that would converge with dozens 
of ancient extra canonical texts describing exactly the same thing. What, what, let's not stop there. <laughs> not, not only does he nail it in the past, but he nails it in the future when Einstein starts proposing these things mm -hmm. yeah. and actually putting numbers to it and say, no, no, you could totally bend the fabric of space given the right conditions, yeah. right? So he's nailing yeah. it in the past, right? Saying, okay, we, you know, there's this evidence over here that he would not have had access to those records at that time. And then he's nailing it in the future. Mm, 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 mm. Well, that's just, I, I have a whole presentation on, on how the teachings of Joseph Smith have been validated by today's science. And that's one of them. All right. Um, I've got to read this one to you just because it's so amazing to me. It's one of my favorites. All right. Uh, page 142. I knew I was going to forget some things in our little discussion. You're good. You're good. It's a lot. It's huge. And it's all your fault. I know. You made me do it. I know. All right. <clears throat> I know that's so only my bad. <laughs> so I'm reading now. Um, <laughs> page 147 of my book. This is from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Page 473. You're talking about that book that was wrote by that just stud of an individual named Ken Peterson. The yeah, more well, that the guy. That guy's crazy. Prokrypa. That's the one. I, he's crazy. He's crazy. It's <laughs> awesome. All right, praise God, exalt him, the glory in the tabernacle of the God of knowledge. The cherubim fall before him and bless him. The cherubim, cherubims aren't humans. Right. They have human features, but apparently they have wings. And they're exalted beings. That's another thought, that there are exalted beings that aren't us. <gasps> <laughs> that the plan of salvation is a cooperative effort. Oh, and seraphim, all this yeah. stuff. <clears throat> the cherubim fall before him and bless him. As they arise, the quiet voice of God is heard. In fact, Joseph Smith talking about the variety of life forms in eternity. Right. Thousands, tens of thousands of life forms that have greater variety than anything we have here on earth. I can't wait. <clears throat> <clears throat> followed by a tumult of joyous praise as the cherubim unfold their wings god's quiet voice is heard again the cherubim bless the image of the chariot throne that appears above the firmament then they joyously acclaim the splendor of the luminous firmament that spreads beneath his glorious seat as the wheel beings advance holy angels come and go between his chariot throne's glorious wheels appears something like an utterly holy spiritual fire. All around are what appear to be streams of fire resembling electrum. What's that a word for? Lightning bolts. <clears throat> and shining handiwork comprising wondrous colors embroidered together, pure and glorious. Could you imagine a person from the first century BC trying to describe this technology? Doing a pretty good job, though. <clears throat> Wondrous colors and brighter together, pure and glorious. The spirits of the living, godlike beings move to and fro perpetually, following the glory of the wondrous chariots. 
A quiet voice of blessing accompanies the tumult of their movement, and they bless the Holy One each time they retrace their steps. And it goes on there. These streams of fire and these holy angels beings coming and going. Yeah. Uh, accomplishing the works of the Almighty. <clears throat> and there's lots, lots of stuff like that. Oh, look. It's that book this is... by that guy. So the things that the things that uh, Brigham Young taught about the earth falling, that it was, when Adam was placed upon it, it was near the terrestrial. Now, the false assumption that even the Kolob theorem, and I think uh, uh, Earth in the beginning makes, is the Earth always was there. Clearly, it wasn't. If things were living and dying on it, it wasn't in a terrestrial state. Right. Right. Clearly, it was a telestial sphere being used for other things. Then God says, now it's your turn. Come on over here and let's put Adam and his posterity on it to fill the measure of its creation. And the Earth itself rejoices that it will finally be exalted. <clears throat> I was just going to say, it's it's the same, even that, that testifies of this great plan of um, progression, right? Even the earth itself goes through a progression uh, till it fills the method. The Doctrine and Covenant states that explicitly, and we will read about that. So in the book of Adam and Eve, it says, Adam is speaking, inasmuch as while he was in the garden, and heard the voice of God, and the sound he made in the garden, God made, and feared him God, Adam never saw the brilliant light of the sun. Neither did the flaming heat thereof touch his body. Hmm. So while he was in the garden, before he fell, he never saw the sun. Because he wasn't in the same... <laughs> he wasn't in orbit around the neighborhood, right, that used that particular light. Okay. All right. The same book. Adam says... And this darkness, O Lord, where was it ere it came upon us? So when this is after the fall, and he's like, what is this darkness stuff? And he, this book is so interesting. It describes what it feels like to descend from a terrestrial being to a telestial being. And Adam hates it. He hurts. He's hungry. He's confused. He can't see God anymore. He can't hear God anymore. Right. Uh, where did it come upon us? It is such that we cannot see each other. For so long as we were in the garden, we neither saw nor even knew what darkness is. Eternal day, everlasting burnings. Right. right? There is no darkness in the kingdom of God. Then when God, who is merciful and full of pity, heard Adam's voice, he said unto him, O Adam, so long as the good angel was obedient to me, a bright light rested on him and on his hosts. But when he transgressed my commandment, I deprived him of that bright nature, and he became dark. So uh, it mentions that terrestrial bodies are actually luminous. Right. They emit light. And when he was in the heavens, in the realms of light, he knew not of darkness, but he transgressed, and I made him fall from heaven upon the earth, and it was this darkness that came upon him. So when he was on the earth before he fell, there was no darkness. Right. Yeah, he wasn't orbiting the sun. Now, where did all of this happen? There are location clues from Earth in the beginning. Surrounding the throne of God is an enormous collection of very great stars, according to Abraham. So the greatest stars in our neighborhood are going to be um, where God is. <clears throat> Abraham also recorded that somewhere 
In the middle of this great collection of stars was a group of 15 governing stars, the most eminent of which is called Kolob. Kolob is nearest unto the throne of God. The throne of God is the celestial. Kolob okay. is, people confuse Kolob with the celestial. It's not, it's nearest. Right. It's, it's nearest, right. And the other thing is important that where God dwells, there's no time. Right. On Kolob, there's time. Mm. Yeah. No, it passes good... much more slowly than on Earth. Right. But they are related mathematically, at least. <clears throat> In the Joseph Smith's Egyptian alphabet and grammar, um, it states, and I think it's page 15 or 18 of it. It's in the Joseph Smith the Papers Project. You can read this um, directly. God has established laws which regulate the emission of his glory. What do we know about his glory, his fullness? <clears throat> no unclean thing right. can enter into the kingdom of God. Why? Because they would perish. Yeah, they perish, right. So he's put he's put laws to govern that so that he doesn't burn everything up by his very presence which is why he doesn't appear to us right which is why when he and christ appeared to joseph smith it was by vision and even then joseph smith had to be pure enough and worthy enough to withstand the glory of the vision right the literal presence would have destroyed the earth which is why we have the holy ghost so he can communicate with us without condemning us or destroying us <clears throat> until we achieve sufficient purity that we can have the second comforter. Hmm? Right. Section 67. Um, so God has established laws which regulate the emission of his glory so that the right degree of light cheers the face of millions of planets. Let this be this, and this is quoting now what it says. Let this be the center for light. And let there be bounds that it may not pass. He that set a cloud round about the heavens and the light of the grand governing of 15 fixed stars center there. There it is drawn or contained by the heavenly bodies according to the decrees that God hath set as the bounds of the ocean that it should not pass over as a flood. So God has set the bounds of light lest it pass over and consume the planets. Ooh. Some spheres cannot endure the full glory of God. That gives us some clues. Eric Skousen says, note that this protective cloud is round about, or it encircles, it roughly circular. It is also dense enough to block the light from a vast assemblage of powerful stars so that life on our Earth and other Earths is not threatened with extinction Ooh. that's a pretty good clue yeah <laughs> the prophet joseph smith told was told that the father's planetary home is in the midst of his cosmic dominions in a central location where all things are governed by the power of god who sitteth upon his throne who is in the bosom of eternity who is in the midst or the middle of all things Okay, now let let me let me speculate. And again, I'm willing to be wrong. When you this start is why we're friends. Yeah, that's right. When 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 you start talking about a cloud that absorbs that light, the first thing I think of is the Great Rift or the 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 Milky Way, right? That you can see up in the heavens. 
right? Because it does resemble a cloud a little bit. Now, if we were to take what was just said there, if I'm understanding correctly, that means the presence there, you know, his throne sits in the midst of that. Am I wrong? Did I did I get that right? Let's find out. Michael Rhodes, Egyptologist. The word kolob most likely derives from the common Semitic root QLB, which has the basic meaning of heart, center, or middle. In fact, the Arabic form of this word kolb forms part of the Arabic names of several of the brightest stars in the sky. Getting closer. J. Reuben Clark. But this fact seems reasonably clear. Now, he was an, uh, <clears throat> an authority in the church during the, and he was a scientist. I think from the U, if I, if I'm not wrong there. But they were starting to understand what a galaxy actually was. He was alive for that discovery because for the longest time, we had no idea that we were inside. We didn't know what galaxies were. We didn't know if we even were in one, right? Right. But they were starting to discover that in his lifetime. And, he's, and he says <clears throat> that the hub or center of a galaxy exists and performs a broad principle the functions of Kolob, and that Kolob's existence and function were known about 4,000 years before our day. Ooh. Now, here's the fact. <clears throat> this is an annotated illustration map of the Milky Way and what it looks like, as far as we can tell, but because we're in it. It's kind of hard to see it. <clears throat> we don't have and boy, boy, if we could have a satellite that could be that far away to see that would have to be about a hundred thousand light years out we don't have anything close to that to get this picture but <clears throat> here we are there's a galactic core the milky way is approximately 100,000 light years in diameter so this is 50,000 light years we are about 27,000 light years from the core mm. the um, greatest concentration of radiated energy in the Milky Way is unquestionably at its core, where the radiant energy is so great that were it not for the intervening dust clouds between it and us, all life on Earth would be obliterated. Ooh. Okay. So... so there's this veil of dust surrounding the throne of God, otherwise known as a veil which is literal and extremely symbolic, okay. but extremely literal. Right. Were it not for the veil that surrounds the throne of God, we would perish. Okay. But there is just enough light that it cheers the face of millions of planets. Think of this statement that was given uh, 200 years ago. Yeah. Well, and now... That's lucky. Man, Look, that's lucky. Right. Let, once again, pretty good guesser Joseph Smith was. Um, yes, he was. Let, let, me, let me ask you this question. Because <laughs> now, now I'm going to go to something else. If we look at Egypt, specifically the, the pyramids of uh, the... the, the the Great Pyramid of Giza and its two surrounding. Yes, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that at the time of its uh, of of its building, that it correlated with the stars on Orion's belt. Yeah. 
We also see something very similar in South and Central America. Yes. They aligned their structures with um, uh, heavenly bodies that astronomy was important to them. That they related astronomy to God. Yeah. Well, and as the more we go through this conversation, the more it should fascinate Mormons, right? Um, given that, can we, would it be in the realm of possibility here that, that there are echoes to that, that, that perhaps these ancients knew a little more than we did and they positioned their, their, their structures to reflect this is where God dwells, or this is where we think he made oh, it. Yeah. Well, we know that ancient peoples did because, I mean, they didn't have, they didn't live in cities. And so they could see that I grew up in northern Wyoming and the stars were wondrous to me. Right. My, my kids don't understand that. Right. Living in this little city, they don't get to see the stars. I mean, I'd go out there and go, what in the heck is, whoa, what's that? What's going on? I mean, it inspired the Greek gods for that. Matter. Right. They named these constellations. But we know that Abraham taught astronomy right. to Pharaoh. Yep. Right. And that the astronomy was significant and that the signs of the heavens correlate with the plan of God. Because he knows everything and the timing of everything is just right. And, you know, um, comets, asteroids, the darkening of the sun, moon turning into blood, all of that stuff, the stars falling from heaven, all that sort of stuff is related to the plan and this giant clockwork. And I think the relationship is even greater than that. Yeah. You know, and, and I'll, I want to say this too, right? And maybe it's so fascinating to me, all of this, because I think if you're raised with this knowledge, so to speak, you, you might take it for granted, right? Because in most of Christendom, God is not, not a, a personage. He is, he is without forms, parts, or passions. Right. Yeah. And again, and I bring this up a lot because it is revolutionary within Christendom. So if you grew up in Mormonism, you may not understand the significance of what mm -hmm. Joseph did here by, <laughs> by being able to reveal that, no, no, we, we have proximity to the divine. We have proximity to deity. We're related to deity. Yes. Not just in time and space, but through familiar uh, relationships, and and that's that's revolutionary in all of Christendom, um, maybe even all of religion. Period. Um, oh, the sacrilege in Christendom! Yeah, it is Christendom. right. Yeah. yeah, how dare you? How dare you put something so great as God, even though He's still literally at the center of the universe? <laughs> but. <laughs> But how dare you give him proximity? So yeah, now no. there are other implications. Yep. Uh, so the Milky Way is a barred spiral galaxy. They call it 100 to 120 thousand light years in diameter, which contains between, at any given point in time, one to 400 billion stars. Ooh. And and we now know that every single star we can see has orbiting bodies, at least three or four. So it may contain at least as many planets as well. It most certainly does. Now, let so me ask you let, let yeah. me ask one other question here. Because I'm looking at this picture of, of our cosmic neighborhood, so to speak. Yep. It's got an eerie resemblance 
to how a tornado moves um, or a hurricane, excuse me. The, the Fibonacci sequence. Is that what it's called? Yeah, that spiral pattern that occurs in nature. It's called the Fibonacci sequence, and it seems to be some golden mathematical formula. I read something, and this is going way off to the side, that they were able to examine the cell of an ancient a prehistoric life form that did not follow the Fibonacci sequence. <laughs> because all cell life forms in our world are based on this Fibonacci sequence is what it's called. Mm. But it must apparently be something related to um, God. Yeah. Father. But not to the, not to the prehistoric creation. There's, that's how my mind works. Scary, isn't it? <clears throat> when I saw this first, when I first saw this annotated Milky Way galaxy, I teared up. This is the face of God. This is when I realized. You know what else is really cool about this? And this is the Kolob theorem, the whole idea. I mean, the Kolob theorem talks about a lot of things. It's a free online text, by the way. And it's not very long and it's profound. Um is leading up to this whole process we've gone through that he believes that the kingdom of God the Father is the Milky Way. If that's true, you and I can step outside during a specific time of the year and we can see Kolob. Right. Or at least in the direction thereof. Right. And the most interesting ancient American tradition I've heard. So during August, late July and early, through early September, the orientation of the sky is that you go outside after it gets dark between nine and say midnight and the Milky Way is lined up, up, up over our heads. You look at Cygnus, the swan, which is this giant cross, the bottom of which points to the galactic core. So the Milky it follows the Milky Way down to the southern horizon. And when you find the teapot, I forget what its uh, name is. The spout of the teapot points to the galactic center, Sagittarius A. As it goes down, if you follow the Milky Way, there's a part of it that spurs off to the right and dead ends. The Lakota Sioux say that if you follow the Milky Way, I forget what they called it, it would take you to the Great Spirit. But if you took the wrong passageway off to the right, right. You, would, it would, you would it would lead you to oblivion. <laughs> I remember the first time I had the courage to go out and look and say, there you are. I mean, it's real. It's a cool thing to me. Yeah, it to, should to be. To say, there you are. At least there you were 27,000 years ago. Kind of a thing. But that's all other stuff. <clears throat> so to give us some idea, in this photo, how many stars can we see with the naked eye on a good night? On a clear night, we can see about 3,000 stars. All we can see, let's go back up here. If this is the Earth, and this is uh, 5,000 light years right here, that circle going around, that's all we can see. That's it. You know, we, our, na our naked eye cannot see any of the rest of this stuff. You know, I think it's important, too, that we put some of this into perspective. We keep throwing out the term light year, and I want to yeah. put this in perspective to everyone. There you go. What? Oh, never mind. You're gonna. You're so good. <laughs> it's like you went through this already. 
because I wanted to talk about this, the vast, I've had this conversation with people who go, well, sacrilege, are you suggesting that God is just a God of just one galaxy? And I'm like, are you ignorant? A galaxy? Can you comprehend <laughs> 400 billion stars? Can you comprehend a trillion planets? Can you comprehend infinite time? Oh, he's only the God of a galaxy. I mean, well, what do you think? I mean, there's that hubris at work again. Everybody thinks they're going to have their own galaxy. Buddy, you're going to be lucky if your celestial inheritance is this Earth. Right. You'll be lucky. Anyway, so <clears throat> the uh, galactic and even distances between stars are so vast that miles cease to make any sense. Right. So they use the term which can do, which is called a light year, which is the distance light can travel in a year. Light travels 671 million miles per hour. The distance to the sun is 93 million miles. It takes light eight minutes to get there. <laughs> so eight light minutes. Mars is 12 light minutes away. <clears throat> the closest star to us, to our star, is Proxima Centauri. It takes light four years to get there at 671 million miles per hour. The Earth, or, or, <clears throat> to the other side of the Milky Way, <clears throat> that would only take us, yeah, just directly to the other side, not to the end, is 52,000 light years. The other significant thing, <clears throat> when we look up at the nights, or <clears throat> when we look at this, when we look at the eclipse, the light that we're seeing is eight minutes old. Yep. What we're seeing happened eight minutes ago. That's a cool thing. I was just going to say, we get to look <laughs> back in time. Here you go again. Ahead. This, this is awesome. <clears throat> yeah. Or when we look at the star, Proxima Centauri, and assuming James Webb could resolve and show us what's happening on that planet or on that star, that happened four years ago. Yep. The light that's reaching our eye happened four years ago. Anyway, <clears throat> so this galaxy is so vast, it takes light 100,000 years to go from one side, from one end to the other. Ooh. Brigham Young. Every planet in its first rude organic state receives not the glory of God upon it, but is opaque, meaning it, it's not luminous. A star is luminous. <clears throat> Only after a planet has reached full maturation and has been resurrected does it shine like a star, mm. which is also true of us. Right. Brigham Young again, this earthly ball. This little opaque substance thrown off into space is only a speck in the great universe. When it is celestialized, it will go back into the presence of God where it was first framed. Mm -hmm. So it will go back. The call up theorem is correct. It will be transported again, be a wormhole, presumably, be celestialized and enter into the celestial realm. Eternal day. Because it'll be... I, I didn't include this. Uh, Brigham Young said something else very interesting. This is out of the call-up theorem. Um, yeah. Brigham Young adds that the purified and sanctified earth will be placed in the cluster 
of celestial kingdoms. So the celestial kingdom is a region in which reside many celestialized worlds. Ooh. So if this is the celestial realm, this could constitute the terrestrial realm. Okay. Yeah. And clearly where we are, this is the telestial realm. And beyond the telestial realm is outer darkness. Outer darkness. So, and this is fascinating. The closer we are in proximity to God, the greater the glory, which it would have to be right. in order to withstand that purity and that energy that is being radiated. And of course, people mock us who think this. Nobody could possibly live at the center of the galaxy. There's way too much energy. And it's like, that's exactly what God says. Yeah. People can't go there. <clears throat> Here's the Doctrine and Covenants explicitly explaining what happens to the earth. The redemption of the soul is through him that quickeneth all things. And it reads over real fast, so I missed it the first time. In whose bosom, in, in, the, in his bosom, near him, near his heart, it is decreed that the poor and the meek of the earth shall inherit it, the earth. So uh, the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, right. the meek shall inherit the earth. Oh, that's nice. No, it's literal. Right. That the exalted will live on the earth. Well, the celestialized will live on the earth in its celestialized state in his bosom, in his home. Therefore, it, the earth, must needs be sanctified from all unrighteousness, that it may be prepared for the celestial glory. What's beautiful about this, everything that he's saying applying to the earth applies to us as well. Right. It's the same process. For after it, the earth, hath filled the measure of its creation, it shall be crowned with glory, even the presence of God the Father, that bodies who are of the celestial kingdom may possess it, the earth, forever and ever. For for this intent was it made and created, and for this intent they, us, are sanctified. We, just, we gloss over that, not getting what it's really saying. That's amazing stuff. Which brings us to section 130. <clears throat> the angels do not reside on a planet like this earth, but they reside in the presence of God in the celestial realm on a globe like a sea of glass and fire, a glorified, sanctified world where all things for their glory are manifest, past, present, and future, and are continually before the Lord. The place where God resides is a great Urim and Thummim. The sea of glass and fire is the with them. This earth, in its sanctified and immortal state, will be made like unto crystal and will be a Urim and Thummim to the inhabitants to dwell thereon, whereby all things pertaining to an inferior kingdom or all kingdoms of a lower order will be manifest to those who dwell on it. And this earth will be Christ's. And then it goes on and talks about things pertaining to a higher order will be manifest on the white stone given to each of us who enter each of us, each of these all those other people who enter the celestial realm. Right. And here's, we talked about this earlier. Moses, one of the things we skip over. And as one earth shall pass away, and the heavens thereof, so shall another come. Another will take its place. 
Okay. And there is no end to my works, neither to my words. For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass immortality the eternal life of man. He just keeps doing it, as do we. Joseph Fielding Smith, Jr. God, our Father, is the creator of life, and he placed life on this earth in varied forms and also on other worlds. He will continue his work on this earth and upon other planets or worlds, because earth and planet are not synonymous, which will take the place which will take the place of this earth when it has been exalted and gone on to its celestial glory. Same idea. So he tell <clears throat> right there, and again, if you don't slow down and think about this, where it says another shall come and take its place, right? Another planet. It's that kind of that next man up sort of deal. Right, like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, this this is created. It filled the measure of its creation. Take it back to the Father, and then something else takes its place to start the process all over again. Everything we have viewed thus far is only matter that we can see. Scientists now estimate that dark matter constitutes sixty three percent of the total matter in the universe. So imagine everything we've seen, the Milky Way, right? in this case, we're only seeing less than 40% of it. Right. And that dark energy plus dark matter constitute over 95% of the total content of the universe. Explain what is, dark matter. Is. Um, and I think I have later, but let me point oh, out here. When, no, no, no. When they observe galaxies, other galaxies, they can observe the rotational speed. The speed at which it is rotating given the laws of physics that we understand and given the amount of mass that we can see, um, is it centrifugal force or centripetal, which is one that's pulling outward? They're going so fast that they should be flying off into space rather than orbiting the center of the galaxy, which tells them there has to be more mass present than what we can see. So the gravitational forces would keep everything in tow. It's rotating faster than it should be given the mass that they can see. Gotcha. So they do the math. So they they can't, when they've every tool at, at their disposal, they're applying, trying to figure out where this mass, this gravity is coming from. They can't see it, but they can measure its gravitational force. Okay. And they so and so they know it has mass, so it has to be matter, but it's matter that exists beyond the the realm of our uh, electromagnetic spectrum that we can detect. That's crazy. Unfortunately, they call it dark matter. It's probably not dark at all. We just can't see it. Right. And what and what is the human assumption? Well, it's just some cloudy stuff. <laughs> not believing that it might have order as well as the world of our matter. Right. Now stick with me. Joseph Smith. There is no such thing as immaterial matter. All spirit is matter, but it is more fine or pure and can only be discerned by purer eyes. We cannot see it, but our bodies are pure. But when our bodies are purified, we shall see that it is all matter. He's speaking of the spirit. Mm -hmm. Moses, I am God. I made the world and men before they were in the flesh. 
Doctrine and Covenants 29. For by the power of my spirit created I them. Yea, all things both spiritual and temporal. First spiritual, secondly temporal, which is the beginning of my work. And again, first temporal and secondly spiritual, which is the last of my work. What he's talking about is a dual creation. Right. We know that about us. We existed as spirits before we were infused with physical matter. Our right. spirit matter was infused with. So if it's a dual creation, the spirit realm should be at least as massive as the physical realm. Right. Perhaps even 63%. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Kaboom. I was somebody was describing on some documentary what dark matter was. It would be like somebody walking into the room and passing right through your body, and you would have no idea. I was like, he just described a spirit. spirit. Yeah. I think, okay, this is Ken Peterson. We got to live again. I think dark matter is the spirit world. I think you're right. I think you're right. What we're looking at here is a rendering, uh, is a, a theoretical map of the dark matter in our galaxy. And, and they can not... measure they can measure gravity. Right. And notice that the dark matter and the, the denser the color, the denser the dark matter. So it's not evenly dispersed. Why no. should it be? The world of physical matter isn't. It's in globs and clumps and planets. Of course, our earth, you know what our spiritual home was, the spirits? Probably the spiritual earth. Right. Well, I, I was going to say, looking at that picture there, it bears an eerie resemblance to that same spiral pattern that we see. Saw you before. think? Yeah. What, what is really cool, let's see is that the most dense concentrations correlate with these apparent spaces or gaps right. in our galaxy. Meaning, and remember I talked about the Pistol Sophia describing these spaces? Right. Kingdoms, and it talks about the region of the 12 invisibles. It's right there where there's nothing. Right. This is the realm of spirits. Uh -huh. Could this be the home of pre-mortal spirits as they're awaiting their turn to occupy physical bodies and worlds? Okay, yeah. Now, that would be a little crazier. There are different types of galaxies. Spiral galaxies are pretty common. There are less common called ring galaxies, which have a dense center and an outer ring and nothing in the middle. I, I submit to you that is an early, a baby galaxy where... The process, what the gods are doing is is fusing spirits with physical matter. And when it's all done, you will see a galaxy that looks like um, lenticular galaxies where everything is diffused. Okay. The spiritual realm, these empty lanes no longer exist. Right. The, young, the youngest ones, you'll see nothing but spiritual lanes. These those right. little ring galaxies. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm saying way too much. You're not saying the most important image ever taken in history uh, is a claim to be the Hubble Deep Field. In 1995, shortly after the Hubble was repaired, scientists did something extraordinary. They pointed the Hubble at nothing. They pointed it at, uh, what was it? A, uh, the head of a pin held at arm's length. And they pointed it at the darkest part of the night sky, like by the handle of the Big Dipper or something. 
they pointed it at nothing and focused it on that spot for like a week or something. So it would gather as much light as possible. They were trying to see how far they could see, which was going to tell them how old the universe is because it would be the oldest light they could see. Brilliant. Okay. So where the naked eye sees nothing, this is what Hubble saw. Oh, because oh, all of those bright spots on that picture, those are other galaxies, right? They are all galaxies, except to see the diffraction spikes here. Right. And here, those are stars that uh, that got in the way, that photobombed the picture. 3,000 galaxies in Ooh. a spot where the naked eye sees nothing. 3,000 galaxies. And they thought, is this a fluke? So they pointed it in every other direction. What did they see? Exactly the same thing. The, the density of the dispersion of galaxies in the universe is essentially the same everywhere, generally speaking. And you do the math. What was that? Something held at arms like, uh, I don't know. Uh, and the math is over 300 billion galaxies Jeez. within what's called the light bubble, how far Hubble can see. Uh, the, the last photo I will show you is the James Webb doing the same thing, and it's the same thing. Only, so they're supposed to be seeing the very earliest galaxies, and they figured it's 13 billion light years away, 13.7 or 13.9 billion light years away, which should be baby proto-galaxies. Right. What the James Webb, the, J, the new telescope is showing them, are fully formed spiral galaxies at the beginning of the universe which tells you what the scriptures already tell us. There is no beginning. Right. And uh, astronomers, if when I've heard one when asked, what, what is beyond our light bubble? And they said, probably more of the same. Well, and now, now it starts to become apparent how there can be God's many. Right. If, <laughs> how can it be otherwise? Right. If each one of those, are its own galaxy mimicking our own. I shouldn't say mimicking. Uh, but in the same pattern. Have the same pattern as our own. This does something else too, Ken, which for so long there was this idea of space is chaotic without yeah. form. Yeah. It, um, utterly violent. Yep. Yeah. Now, and, and not that it's not somewhat violent, right? I mean, oh, yeah. asteroid impacts say that. But what this does do is it shows an order to all things. And if you start saying, okay, there's an order to all things, it begs the existence of something far more intelligent, of greater significance than we can possibly fathom. These, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly who, but there are some renowned uh, astronomers and um, uh, and astrophysicists who are absolutely convinced in the existence of a higher power because of the order and the balance of the energy and power at the atomic level and at the, mac the macro level uh, it, that, that exists in such order. And even there are galaxies that have collided, 
collided. Nothing actually touches because the distances are so fast. But even that is a creative event. Stars are created and born through that. I mean, it's it's like life, this creative process. These galaxies come together or even pass through each other or combine. The largest galaxy is 10,000 times bigger than the Milky Way. Holy cow. It's one of these big lenticular galaxies. So the, so the plan of salvation, if it blew your mind to consider the Milky Way galaxy as the kingdom of God, this made me cry. Right. From eternity to eternity, I am the same. There is no end to my works. Worlds without number. Holy smokes. We can see with technology what prophets only saw by vision. And we're the only intelligent species in existence. How ignorant. Prior to 1995, if you believed in extraterrestrial life forms, people would laugh at you for being crazy. That was me. And now people look at this and it is inevitable. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Inevitable. How, <laughs> how can we be it? <laughs> Right. Various galaxy types, spirals, ellipticals, peculiar, they're odd-shaped ones, irregular, barred spiral. Um, these irregular and peculiar are very young, small, baby galaxies, which is crazy. If everything was happened at the same time, 13.7 billion years ago with the Big Bang, the laws of entropy should have said we should all be the same age and breaking down already. Right. But there's right. still new create. There are new creations happening, even at our galactic core. There is a creative force at work. Perspective: Earth resides in our solar system, a star system. Our our solar system resides in a interstellar neighborhood. These are our closest stars, ten, twenty, maybe a hundred light years out. This is a hundred thousand light years. Our galaxy. Holy cow! So our interstellar neighborhood is right here our galaxy exists in a local galactic group there's us this is andromeda andromeda is our closest major galaxy all of these are satellite galaxies small galaxies hmm. most of which will eventually be gobbled up by the milky way and in time the milky way and the andromeda will combine we're headed toward each other Fortunately, it's 2.2 million light years away. So we've got a few million years before we have to worry about that. And even then, it'll be like a big party, I suppose. Right. Our local galactic group is part of a supercluster. Here's our group, and here's all these other clusters of galaxies. Our supercluster is a part of, a lo of local superclusters, which is part of the observable universe. Now, here's just things observable. Yeah. Here's the crazy thing. Uh, the light bubble, meaning that's as much light as we can see because that's when time began. Right. Or so they say, but here's the problem. This is 13.7 billion light years, but it's also 13.7 billion light years in that direction. That's almost 28 billion light years and we're right in the middle? No. <laughs> and... The, some have speculated that, that the universe is actually 96 billion light years across. How do you how can you explain a universe that is bigger than time? 
They said, well, at the Big Bang, they broke the laws of physics and expanded faster than they should have. <laughs> I mean, they're all spitballing at this point. Right. 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 Moses, and were it possible that man could number the particles of the earth, a millions of earths like this, so the all the particles of the earth, time millions of earth, it would not be a beginning to the number of my creations. Mm. This photograph is of the globular star cluster in the Omega Centauri, a part of our uh, galaxy. Star clusters are these groups of very old stars that kind of orbit our uh, galactic halo, our galactic core. And that's just, that's a star cluster. It's you like know, a jewel box. That one and the Hubble one. The other thing that I'm also astounded by is the vibrancy of color. Yeah. Right. Um, typically we think of space as black and white, right? White in the absence thereof. This is a different picture. He could imagine uh, in his um, essay, Unrolling the Scrolls of Some Forgotten Witnesses, Hugh Nibley, and I forget what the exact extra-canonical reference is, quotes it saying that Christ, well, it's in Pista Sophia, telling his disciples that there are many different kinds of light, much more than what we see here mm. um, on Earth. <clears throat> that must be my cue that we're at the end <laughs> um there are many worlds that have passed away by the word of my power there are many that now stand and innumerable are they unto man but all things are numbered unto me for they are mine and i know them the heavens, they are many. Some people interpret that as galaxies. Right. And they cannot be numbered unto man, but they are numbered unto me, for they are mine. And as one earth shall pass away, and the heavens thereof, so shall another come. And there is no end to my works, neither to my words. This is the JW, the James Webb Space Telescope deep field. And there you have it. We survived. So... As I've been sitting here thinking about this and and what I'm going to take away from this, it's that it's it's this that it it's absolutely astounding when you stop to think about the breadth of time and space that happens, that everything God has to to work with in order to keep this whole plan going. But, but it's all for one thing, <laughs> right? It's for us. We should be both humbled as well as encouraged at, at the same time that, that it really is all for his children, right? And if it is all for his children, then truly... We, we've heard it before, but truly then the the governing idea that has to be over this whole thing emanating from the very throne of God is love. Love for his children, 
love for his creation and for the hope that that we can ascend to where he's at yeah i love that in the context of the verses that we as mormons uniquely understand you know uh why god gets up in the morning so to speak right uh in moses is where we find that the very first chapter the first thing he does to moses is he shows him the world and the ends thereof verse eight and all the children of men which are and which were created and then the presence of god he just showed him this world and then the presence of god withdrew from moses and he fell to the earth and it came to pass it was for the space of many hours before moses did again receive his natural strength and he said unto himself now for this cause i know that man is nothing which thing i never had supposed right so you see what god's doing and watch what happens in a minute but so uh, Moses was second in power in Egypt. And God had to show him that that's nothing. That right. is nothing. So Moses was humbled. And then he flips it on him. <clears throat> and so now we see in the same chapter, after Satan tries to deceive him at his weakest, then God in verse 35 but only account of this earth and the inhabitants thereof give I unto you. For behold, there are many worlds that have passed away by the word of my power. And we read about that. Or behold, so after he humbles Moses, and then he shows Moses all of this stuff. And then says, what I've shown you, multiply that times millions upon millions. Moses is feeling extremely insignificant. Then he flips it on him and says, but all of it's for you. Yeah. All of this stuff you see, all of these amazing, incredible possessions and creations, the reason this is all here is to bring to pass your immortality and eternal life. Hmm. God bearing worlds. Yep. The ancient texts call it. This is the greatest, <clears throat> the greatest story ever told. Yeah. <clears throat> And it's true. I'm telling you, <laughs> it was a heck of a guess for a, for a farm boy from upstate New York. Even if it weren't right, it would still be the most incredible story ever told. But then for it to actually be not only plausible, but provable. Right. And, and verifiable and vindicated by science and time. Yeah. Even and, I have to, even I have to believe it. Yeah. Ken, that was absolutely awesome. Thanks for coming back <laughs> on, my man. Yeah. I I'll be thinking about this one for weeks. Yeah, we'll be thinking about it until we get it all, I imagine. Yeah. Because every time they point the James Webb in a different direction, it adds. I mean, I'm, every time something new is discovered, I'm trying to, my brain tries to fit it into this model. Yeah. And it is astonishing. Amazing. Because it all fits amazingly into the plan. The plan gives it all context. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. No, thank you, dude. I appreciate it. Like I said, this 
it, it's this is one of those that I feel like it's healthy because we get a little bit of that sense that Moses got of like slow your roll you're you're not that important right and or or you're not that special maybe but then God flips it and says but it's all for you it's all for you I do this because I love you and, and the contem and the contemplation of the eternities which Joseph Smith was constantly trying to get the saints to do. Right. It's partly why we have temples, yep. to help us see the long view, the greater perspective, that the minutia of our lives, that the pain and the struggle and the effort is a part of this vast and a significant part of this vast eternal plan. And I was thinking about this. The, the Nauvoo saints, the Nauvoo temple, they were under fire, under pressure to leave, and they were desperately working to finish this temple enough so that they could use it why it was brigham and others were desperate to endow the saints and i'm like why endow them with power power to do they still had to trudge across a thousand miles of desert and pull their belongings it, i mean they didn't have any magical power to transport themselves and people still died and froze and they still had to work hard it wasn't the kind of power that we see in superhero movies it was this long view. This was it gave them the perspective, and the faith, and the courage, and the strength to endure everything they had to endure. That's the power, Absolutely. which is embodied in "Come, Come, You Saints." Absolutely, they, which they sing. And should we die before our journey's through, happy day, all is well. We then are free from toil and sorrow too. With the just, we shall dwell. But if our lives are spared again to see the saints, their rest obtain, oh, how we'll make this chorus swell, all is well. What a perspective. And they right. sang that. They sang that for a thousand miles in this desert. And that perspective was given to them through the endowment among right. the other restored doctrines. I love what, what, what Nibley had said, and I'm going to butcher this horribly, so forgive me. But he talks about at times in his books when talking about the temple that it's taking the infinite and then putting it inside of a of something that we can wrap our minds around. Yes, yeah, and there's even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's even allusions to sacred geometry there, right? As oh, yeah. squaring the circle, right? Oh uh, yeah. And and so there's 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 a lot there to be had. And and I guess, you know, wh whatever flavor of Mormon you are, I I would just say listen to this once before you go to the temple next time. And then about try to understand that what the temple is doing is taking exactly what Ken and I, and me extremely crudely, Ken's way better at it than I am, but taking these things and scaling it so you can begin to wrap your mind around it. That's really the mystery and the beauty of the temple. One and, of the first, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, you're good. I was just going to say, and, and that's what the temple is for. It's the long game. It's to try to begin to understand a little bit what eternity is and that 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 view from above that that we can have when i was first 
trying to put together the location of God and reading some of this stuff. And I had come to that same kind of conclusion even before I'd read some of these books. Part of it was the symbolism of the prayer circle. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Where God is at the center. Yep. We surround him. And Lehi, speaking of joining the heavenly choirs above, surrounding the throne of God. The, symbol, the symbolism of that is not accidental. No. No, it's not. Well, that's beautiful. Ken, again, thanks so much. And the veils! <laughs> What's that? And the veils. We forgot to riff on the veils. We did forget to riff on the veils. The veil but in the temple, what that symbolizes. And the veils that are talked about in these extra canonical texts and that Brigham Young referred to, the angels that stand as sentinels. Yeah. That guard the way. Uh, oh, I forget my name. But this awesome quote that there are veils that we must pass through as we approach, and it, you know, the Kolop theorem approach between the sun or between where we are now and the galactic core, there are very specific kingdoms and veils literal dust veils that we must pass through and that we have to be prepared to pass through right by covenants that we have made through these sacred ordinances that prepare us to do so and the pista sophia details that very process that absolutely. we're taught about in our earthly buildings in our temples absolutely whoo well, Ken, this was awesome, man. Thank you so, so much for coming on. Thanks for bearing with me. This was a long one. It's a bearing one. with you nothing, man. This was awesome. We uh, covered a lot of ground, didn't we? Light years of it. Um, <laughs> I thought about this too. If the universe really is 13.7 billion years old, that means we've had about five eternities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, there's so much to take away out of this conversation. I mean, I think it may be one of the few times that, publicly speaking, someone's dared to say, no, 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 no. An eternity is quantifiable. <laughs> Einstein would be proud. You're welcome. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I got nothing to lose. You know, if I were had a position of authority or something like that, I'd, I'd have to watch out. But I'm just 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 a guy who I can you know, I can say this stuff, you know. Yeah, no, it's good stuff and it rings true, right? I mean, everything we talked about here is testified of either through scripture, through the words of Joseph Smith or just through the the order you know of the what, galaxy though? that's there. Even even if it's not exactly true, the fact that we can even go there that we can find a model that really does fit what the restored gospel teaches is thrilling to yeah. even ponder that and to be able to see the pattern of God in all of creation. Right. Uh, that so. that's worth, that's worth it right there. And a, a friend of mine once said, um, if you are prepared enough to ask the right question, you're, the answer cannot be far behind. So just in the process of pondering these things. Yep. Reckoning like Brother Brigham, it'll get us somewhere. I've, I've often thought that that the Lord gauges our spiritual maturity and ability to handle certain pieces of information based solely upon our questions. So uh, this, this friend of mine called it the hedge of revelation. Right. 
No, it, yeah. it protects the unprepared from the mysteries and the mysteries from the unprepared. Absolutely. And we're prepared enough to ask the right question. We might be prepared to understand the mystery. Absolutely. All, although if we try and force the issue, we will, uh, Elder Packer in his masterful talk, Candle of the Lord talked about, if we try and force God, try to force the understanding of God, we can't be misled. Yep. So we can do all of our part, do our studies and ask the right questions and be patient as God feels we are ready to receive greater light and knowledge. Absolutely. Beautiful stuff, my man. Let's do it again. Thanks, David. Okay. All right. Bye, I love everybody. It.